Greetings, my fellow Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis, where we look for the foreshadowing mist, new depth in the world building, a better understanding of the plot lines, greater familiarity with the characters, and more fun than you can fit in all seven hells. You can support the show by joining us on Patreon. There's a lot of various <laughs> rewards and benefits to joining us there including getting certain episodes earlier, getting certain shout-outs from time to time, and, of course, being part of the team. We have a great squad running for a long time, and it helps us create episodes like this one. And also a shout-out to our good friend Joe Buckley, who's been contributing to all of the Valar Reviews episodes. But I want to draw extra attention to his book, The Castles of Westeros. It is out. It is available. And I hope you get it, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm sticking with my plan that I started last week of not having coffee during the stream. At least one person commented to say they could tell a difference. And so I'm going to run with it. I feel like I'm a little more uh, even keeled, not trying to rush as much. Today, we have our final set of A Clash of Kings chapters. And that's going to start off with Arya 10, the one where Roose hunts wolves, a.k.a. the gang escapes Harrenhal. Followed by Sansa 8. The gang divides the spoils of war, a.k.a. the one with Sansa's new hairnet. Theon 6, the one where Ramsay captures Theon, a.k.a. the gang sacks Winterfell. Tyrion 15, Tyrion Lannister, the face of Plasterly Rock, a.k.a. the one where Milk of the Poppy leads to Tysha dreams. John 8, the gang kills the half-hand, a.k.a. the one where John joins the Free Folk. And finally, Bran 7, the gang splits up and heads north, a.k.a. the one where Hodor opens the door. Opens the door, yeah. Before he, well before he'll hold the door, he'll open it. And thematically today, as we won, as we might expect, because it's the end of the book, we're getting endings and setups for new beginnings and or large shifts of focus for individual characters. The ending chapters set up new arcs, more, more uh, simply put. Mostly this involves a change of scenery, like for Bran or Theon or Arya, or a large change in outlook, like Tyrion losing his job and his nose, or Sansa no longer being betrothed to Joffrey. So, of course, as we did with the Game of Thrones, we'll be ending uh, Clash of Kings with a wrap-up episode, and that should be featuring Sir Buckley and Lady Gwyn, similar to what we did last time. And then, of course, after that, we'll be proceeding with the Storm of Swords. But let's get going with this last batch of chapters. Arya 10, the one where Roose hunts wolves, a.k.a. the gang escapes Harrenhal. It's a monster of a chapter. I think it's the one we have the most to say about. It's a full and proper introduction to Roose Bolton, who is a monster of a character. But not only are we introduced to him and the implications of a man of his personality at Rob's back, but news from all over the realm reaches Harrenhal at near the same time. All of it is bad for King Rob, exposing his back even more. And of course, Roos is ready to stick a knife right in it. Time for Arya to escape this real-life version of an old Nan story, made all too real by her taking on the name Nan herself during her time with Lord Bolton. And the chapter begins with the following line. The heads had been dipped in tar to slow the rot. Yeah, it's clear now. But at the time, it was not so clear, and it was even kind of hard to imagine to, to grasp the concept that getting the Lannisters out of Harrenhal would make things worse. This is because the awfulness of Tywin Lannister was, was already clear by this point, 
And though the awfulness of the Bloody Mummers was perhaps even more clear, because they are even more awful than Tywin, the awfulness of Ruse Bolton is just now becoming clear. As rereaders, we know it well. But in terms of where we're at in the narrative, this is new. It's uh, been kind of kept under wraps at this point. And then in this chapter, it all comes flowing forth all of a sudden so much about Roos and none of it good. So it's not, it's not his actual first appearance, of course, but it is the first time we get an extended look at him, kind of like how we got an extended look at Jamie for the first time in Kat's final chapter. Quote, you hated Sir Amory too. I hate this lot worse. Sir Amory was fighting for his lord, but the mummers are sell swords and turn cloaks. Half of them can't even speak the common tongue. Septon Ut likes little boys, Kyburn does black magic, and your friend Biter eats people. The worst thing was, she couldn't even say he was wrong. Yeah, that's Arya talking to Gendry, and yeah, Gendry makes good points there. And that's kind of what we were just explaining. That kind of encapsulates it very well. In this chapter, there are several clues that Roos has turned on the Starks. A big one being the example I put into the chapter title, The Hunting of Wolves. That's very symbolic and straightforward if you pay attention to it, if you catch it. If you read it as something else, it's easy to miss. But once you're on the track, it's very plain what you're seeing. First off, though, he condemns many of the inhabitants of the castle for doing their jobs. Jobs they were forced into doing. God, this, this is awful. Quote. Tothmir had been sent to the Axe for dispatching birds to Castor the Rock in King's Landing the night Harrenhal had fallen. Luke and the Armorer for making weapons for the Lannister. Goodwife Hera for telling Lady Wendt's household to serve them, the steward for giving Lord Tywin the keys to the treasure vault. The cook was spared, some said because he'd made the weasel soup, but stocks were hammered together for pretty Pia and the other women who'd shared their favors with Lannister soldiers. Like, what chance do these people have? It's crazy. Tywin breaks the knees of gold cloaks who fled the battle. That's brutal, and it's too much, in my opinion, but at least he has reasonable grounds for punishing them in some way, right? I don't agree with that punishment, but some punishment for deserting is pretty fair, right? I mean, if they failed to do their job, that's pretty straightforward. Maybe Maester Tothmir, you could say the same thing. He didn't have to dispatch those birds. It wasn't his duty to do so. His duty is to the person that rules the castle. But of course, that's an interpretation that ignores the human element. So, <laughs> which, you, which is always happening when you're talking about Roos and Tywin. To be fair, maybe Maester Tothmere was just scared of Tywin, thinking that Tywin would do what Roos did to him if he didn't stay loyal to the Lannisters. So, and of course, to be fair, more, more fair, Tywin's reputation is well known in the South. Everybody knows who he is. So being scared of Tywin makes some sense. Whereas Roos is, you know, it's easy to forget that while we know how awful he is, Maester Tothmere here doesn't probably know that. Like, just as Roos is being introduced, in this chapter as an awful person. That's true for a lot of people in the South. They just don't know who he is. His, his reputation is not well known in the South, especially because that's exactly how Roos has planned it. Remember this quote all the way forward, jumping really far ahead to A Dance with Dragons, Reek 3. I should have had the mother whipped and thrown her child down a well, but the babe did have my eyes. She told me that when her dead husband's brother saw those eyes, he beat her bloody and drove her from the mill. That annoyed me, so I gave her the mill and had the brother's tongue cut out to make, sh to make certain he did not go running to Winterfell with tales that might disturb Lord Rickard. 
Each year, I sent the woman some piglets and chickens and a bag of stars on the understanding that she was never to tell the boy who had fathered him. A peaceful land, a quiet people. That has always been my rule. Uh, so Roos is basically using the don't ask, don't tell method of brutality or the mafia style version where, you know, everyone is bribed to keep quiet or forced to keep quiet or, you know, through methods of tongue cutting or killing. And that creates the illusion of peace because, well, <laughs> it, it looks peaceful, but behind it all, there's brutality enforcing that. Now contrast this to Tywin's method. If we were making Tywin into a mafia boss, he would be like the Don Gotti version, the, the type that, was, that bucked the mold of mafia dons who like to stay shadowy, where Tywin prefers to be out in front and famous. And of course, I'm referring to, you know, the, the reigns of Castamere. That's his, he adopted it as his anthem. And it's, a, <laughs> it's not a thing you do if you're trying to keep subtle. <laughs> this is like, there's a version of, keeping quiet and letting people kind of feel your power from behind the scenes to blasting this anthem about how brutal you are. It's, it's very opposite forms of, of, of ruling here. Another famously unmerciful Hand of the King, Bloodraven, also had songs sung about him too. But as we see, Roose Bolton is more sadistic than either of them, but has a much different attitude to how to wield power. So things are a little different now. Uh, Roos's philosophy of quiet brutality was in part designed to keep the Starks off of him. Now, without the Starks, well, he's still more subtle than Tywin in his wielding of power and more alive. <laughs> but even psychos like Tywin and Roos have nuance with regard to their brands of evil. And we're seeing here that Roos, as brutal as Tywin, maybe more so, is still very different in a lot of ways. Tywin also was trying to repair the reputation of his house as it was reduced to its former state uh, by his father, Titus, who was, you know, in Tywin's mind, an embarrassment. Misguided or not, that's what he was doing. Roos has the advantage of being lord of the Dreadfort, <laughs> a place that already comes with built-in scariness that no one in recent memory tarnished. There wasn't like a, I don't know, maybe his Roos's grandfather, if, if he had, say, uh, I don't know, changed the name to the Joyfort. Well... That would have made Roos being scary a little harder. He would have been like, ah, that's the guy that rules the joy for it. Who's worried about that guy? No one renamed it the bread fort a few generations ago, right? It's still the dread fort with skulls and splayed imagery everywhere. So Roos can feign good cop. He can pretend to be a decent guy, pretend to be a loyal follower of the North, while the history of the Boltons says otherwise. That's the bad cop. So Roos his Roos's Attitude is the good cop, and his, his family history is the bad cop. This is an important point. So, uh, because Roos is still, as far as everyone on the northern side is concerned, fighting for King Rob. At this point in the story, nobody knows otherwise, except some of us readers. He, there hasn't even been Red Wedding planning yet, though it seems like some of that's happening behind the scenes. Rob losing Winterfell is a huge blow, and that is a big part of why. People are not so keen on following anymore. They're looking, they, they see that Rob is probably going to lose in the long term and they don't want to be on that sinking ship. But not only do they not want to be on the sinking ship, they want to take advantage of that. If you can help the ship sink faster, there's rewards in it for them. So men like Roos look for opportunities all the time, no matter what. He was surely thinking of the opportunity that presented to him by this war, no matter how it went from the get-go. 
thing, ways for him to advance, ways for him to maybe t- reduce his enemies, things like that. For example, he made sure the, na- the armies of his neighbors back in the north were reduced. We talked about that when it happened during the Battle of the Green Fork. He started putting his, the men, the soldiers of his neighbors in the most dangerous spots in the different battles he was commanding, and that uh, took a toll. Meanwhile, he kept his own men in reserve, so the Dreadfort men hardly getting used at all. Arya is from the north and didn't know how bad he is. That's a good sign of how well Roose is able to keep things under wraps. Rob didn't either, right? Rob was scared of the Dreadfort. He, he heard of, he's aware of the rumors of their skinning and all that. Roose Bolton himself was a little scary because of how he talks and all that, but there wasn't any sort of, it didn't go any farther than that. It's just like, well, that guy's kind of scary. But from that point on, he seems to be loyal. Ned issued a warning about not letting Theon go, about how dangerous Balon is. But he didn't say anything about Roos. So Ned, maybe Ned just never knew what he was dealing with in terms of Roos Bolt. Uh, so Roos is really good at keeping his awfulness under wraps. This whole a peaceful land of quiet people business works out pretty well. Sad to say, it's brutal, but it, it was working. Roos is, is skilled in his psychopathy. A first-time reader is basically in the same place as the rest of the North here. They're just now learning the depths of, of how bad Roos is. But on reread, as rereaders, we have a very different perspective. The first time his name casually appears on page, it leaps out. Like, when you're reading the first time, you see the name Roos Bolton, you're like, okay, there's some guy. But now, the second time, third time through, the minute you see that name, you're like, oh, there he is. Pay attention. He's given that command to the Green Fork contingent because... He seems like the better choice. <laughs> Catelyn and Rob are like, yeah. We're like, oh, no, there's the there's first mistake, y'all. Stop, stop. Just kill him now. But, but by this point, he has already married Lady Walda. There's some hints of him preparing to play both sides or at least positioning himself to take advantage of however the situation plays out. So you wonder how much coordination he's had with his son, right? Ramsey's been up there pushing the envelope. And of course, we're going to see by the end of, of this set of chapters today, he's going to take Winterfell and destroy it. H- how much was Roos involved in that? How much did, did he tell Ramsay to do this? Did he suggest if the opportunity presents itself to do it? Or does he think his son is dead? Because, well, that's the news that came from, this, from the North, that Ramsay was killed. So, But I, I assume at some point, Roos found out the truth that his son is alive because Ramsay did get to go back to the Dreadfort when Theon sent him. At that point, maybe, maybe there was a message or at least the ability for him to send a message to his father. Uh, it's harder for him to send messages to his father because Roos is out there on campaign, moving from castle to castle. By the time word reaches him that his father's at Hall, it might be too late to send him a message, etc. But Roos could send a message back to the Dreadfort and you know, not have to worry about anyone else intercepting it too much. So, yeah, yeah. We know just how dangerous and terrible Roos is, how casually he inflicts unimaginable pain and suffering, how incredibly unfair his sense of justice is. I think he manages to exceed Tywin in the belief that the nobility are infallible. A man like Stannis has difficulty perceiving the life of a common person. A man like Ned Stark even has trouble with that. Um, He tries a little bit, but they don't get just how bad the life of a peasant can be. So with that, you can be accidentally cruel. Someone like Ned even can be accidentally cruel. But whatever burdens Roos chooses to inflict are entirely a matter of his whim. It doesn't matter if he understands their lot because to him, their lot is whatever he says it is. There is no sympathy, no 
Nothing at all. No hint of compassion. Not even a shred. Uh, Tywin uses brutal methods to enforce his will. Roose does the same, but he believes that they deserve it. <laughs> Tywin is more strategic about it. Roose is just simply callously cruel about it. They make for an interesting comparison, Tywin and Roose. And because they both hold Hall, it's easy to find these direct parallels, especially because it's almost consecutive for them. But Roose's treatment of the commoners here also reminds me of the case that's coming, Davos, Stannis, Axel, Florent, and the case of Claw Isle and House Celtigar. It's an example that we've cited a few times. Uh, Axel Florent argues that the people of Claw Isle are traitors for bending the knee after the Battle of the Blackwater. Davos argues that they fought for their lord and bent the knee only when their lord did first and, and says, well, what choice did they have? The counterargument made is that everyone has a choice, that they should have fought against their lord, that loyalty to the king is more important. Sir Axel wants to make an example of the people of Claw Isle for that, citing all of those things and citing, again, this agency that they have, this so-called agency that I would say adamantly they don't have. Roose inflicts gang rape on a woman for daring to sleep with Lannister soldiers who surely would have beaten or killed her had she not. What choice did she have? The depth of helplessness suffered by these characters is really, it's a real rabbit hole of, of damn, it's just, it's harsh. It's really difficult to think about. But it's the point is to show us just how awful Roos is. He's just that bad. Not just in his, his sense of inflicting direct cruelty through pain, but just in this, this awful sense of justice he has. This logic, quote-unquote logic he has behind why these people are being punished is just incredibly unfair. And this speaks to a larger point, though. Until now, the Starks and the North have mostly been the good guys. We've been, we've accused them of some war crimes here and there, you know, some white war criming, but it's nothing compared to what the Lannisters have done, especially the people in their employ, like the, like the uh, brave companions. So Roose Bolton's like a shock to the system here, causing us to question all of that prior categorization as to which side is better. The implications are deeper than Harrenhal too, even if we don't include what's coming after. Roose has been in charge of his army for a while, since the Battle of the Green Fork. What else has he done off page during his campaign? What other awful things has he done? What other horrible justice, a mockery of justice has he inflicted on small villages and towns that he's passed, unnamed places? That Because he's been in charge of an army full of, you know, that, that in his control for quite a while, months and months. And, and you just, that implies a lot of atrocities. Let's not think about it too much, but, you know, the point is it's awful. So this kicks off what becomes a much bigger theme in A Storm of Swords, and then A Feast for Crows. Rob's side loses a lot of its shine, meaning a lot of the nobility, the justice of their cause really falls apart when, you, when we start getting into who some of these people are. These, some of these lords are not high-minded people. People like Lord Karstark are very petty and, and bloody, where Roos is, well, we just got through describing him. We don't need to go through that again, but it, it, point stands. As these individual faces and personalities and goals of these various northern and river lords, not just northern lords, come into play, well, we're way past the point where we're yelling king in the north and feeling excited about the future. The, the reality of war is, as George is telling us, even the good guys are not the good guys. They just might be less bad. That was the, the, the cheering, the king in the north moment, when they're all cheering there. That's their Knights of Summer moment. They should have known better. So many of them being of the North, <laughs> after all, they know they should know better. But the Southerner, Catelyn, was the one right to feel dread in that moment. She's the one that 
saw this coming, maybe not this exact thing coming, but it all falling apart. She knew or feared that it would all fall apart. And this is very clearly happening in this chapter. If it wasn't notable already, this is a major milestone. Reality is a slog, right? Carving out a kingdom is an incredible feat. And if we're thinking about it from a strategic point of view, making the Riverlands the frontier of your war is really, really tough. I mean, that is the most difficult kingdom to defend. It's in the middle. It's surrounded on all sides by other kingdoms. It's got the most kingdoms that border it right there. That tells you a lot. It's got more potential enemies on its frontier. So all these nameless lords were caught up in the moment. You know, they're remembering now, though, after the campaign's been going for a while, that they're that these are that they're individuals that they're the goals of king rob are not necessarily their goals and this over time these these problems get larger and over time too the story reveals these details these differences they become more clear to us the reader had this stayed a trilogy we wouldn't have had time for this we wouldn't have had time for this depth of these characters the northern army would have probably remained more monolithic and the southern armies as well but this is not a trilogy. And it turns out Rob's lords aren't all like the Great John, badass, loyal, and simple, or the Blackfish, badass, loyal, and cunning. Some want to protect their people, but also want glory, like Edmure. Some are bent on revenge, like I said, Rickard Karstark. Some aren't going to be happy with a broken marriage contract. And some have cruel and ambitious monsters, and they're just hiding in plain sight. So Doan exemplifies this concept of these individual personalities and how different that makes the picture than Roose Bolton himself. No one pushes that envelope more than, than Lord Bolton. There's something more terrifying about a guy that can be this evil, yet so skillful as to remain hidden for so long. In many ways, he's more dangerous because he doesn't have that same level of pride that, say, Tywin or, or Stannis or maybe even someone like Rob have. It's kind of ironic, though, isn't it? Rob, uh, Roose, rather, is less gray than almost any character we've seen. Yet by placing him on the northern side, the side we've been, again, conditioned as readers to root for, well, that's a rude awakening. All of a sudden, we're like, well, he makes things gray, even though he's one of the most black and white characters that it, there is. So that's really neat to me. I mean, if Roos had been on the Lannister side, he would be just, he wouldn't really, uh, it wouldn't be shocking. It would just, they'd be like, oh, that's, you know, this is another one of, person under Tywin who is allowed to be awful because Tywin allows that sort of thing. But under Rob, under Rob, it's just, it creates so much interesting conflict. So to sum that up, I suppose we could say that George makes us love the North and then reminds us why you should never love war and never just love everyone just because they belong to a group. The grayification of the North is a major theme of A Storm of Swords. So this is kind of a setup for that, this, these, this ending of the Clash arcs. The fact that Roos crosses paths with Jamie, a character who, as much as any, shows us the same theme in reverse, right? Jamie goes from kind of mon- not monolithically bad, but a clear bad guy, at this part of the story, to becoming gray, to becoming there's good things about this guy. He's not necessarily redeemed, but he's interesting and conflicted and does some good things. So we're just as we're realizing the good guys aren't perfectly good, we start to get an overwhelming amount of evidence that not all the bad guys are bad, at least not all the time. To be clear, this theme has been present throughout the books. It's there at the start. For example, right away, Tyrion is highly sympathetic, despite being a Lannister, a family that is not overall. And it kind of looks like early on that Sansa will join them. But these expectations are subverted in a variety of ways. 
I think it's fair, though, to say that George takes this from a secondary theme to a primary theme moving forward. The graying of the characters becomes more central rather than just a part of the world that's present all the time. So bringing all this back to Arya, it's fair to say she's graying as well. Obviously, don't refer to her age. <laughs> it's, it's not unique to Arya among the Starks, right? Rob betraying the phrase is revealed in this chapter, and that's kind of making him a little more gray. John's about to join the wildlings. I mean, oof, he's got to break vows and kill Corn Halfhand. That's a slippery slope of sorts. Bran's about to be neck deep in all kinds of moral conundrums. I mean, ironically, the one who seemed and ironically, the one who seemed to be on the wrong track at first, the one most surrounded by enemies, that's Sansa again. She's the most able to stay morally centered out of everyone. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? Some of that circumstance, of course, just the way the plot unfolds for these characters and what challenges they're faced with. But that doesn't mean it's not extremely interesting and another reason to praise George. Arya starts this chapter off by wishing slash pretending one of the heads on the spike is Joffrey's. That's quite an interesting way to remind us that she's also thinking about a lot of this on personal terms, right? Whereas rather than as a Stark, rather than as trying to help her family win the war, something she bounces back and forth on because of her youth. I mean, it's expected for anyone, really, not just youthful people. Of course, it, it, taking things personally is, is na- natural. And in extreme emotional circumstances, it's harder not to. What Arya might do with the skills she learns at the House of Black and White is a topic we'll get into later. But the point here is to acknowledge that she might go too far. Power corrupts, and she will have great power over other life because she will be so good at taking it. She's already been tested, in a sense, by having three wishes from Jockin. It's a good sign, but also a very subtle moment in this chapter when she uses restraint. Arya quickly realizes that she has very similar power that Jockin gave her as to being a, a killer, meaning when she was the ghost of Winterfell, because of Roose Bolton. She's got Roose's ear, sort of. Uh, here's, a, here's a quote. If I told Lord Bolton what she said, her head would be up next to Hera's before it got dark she thought as she drew up the bucket again. She wouldn't, though. Right? It would be really easy for Arya to put words in people's mouths. Roos wouldn't care. He'd be like, yeah, he wouldn't go check it out to make sure they really said it. He's just the kind of man that would indulge the murderous whims of his page or just have someone killed because even the barest hint of suspicion might as well be snuffed out. How? That's consistent with having zero compassion about everything being about you. Roos is like, oh, there's a... If he suspects Arya's lying... He might not care to say, well, I'm going to have this person killed off just in case. Because why not? Because he really just doesn't care that much. He just, life is that meaningless to him. So, so it's another brutal lesson for the commoners. This is, it, it's hopeless, right? Bruce's whims are everything. And this is Hall, right? This, people are used to horror. You have to turn it up a notch to make sure they can hear it. So Bruce is well-suited to filling this vast space of, Hall's haunted castle with the type of attitude that is fitting for such a dark haunted place. I mean, he's from the Dreadfort. His family has spent thousands of years in the Dreadfort. I don't think that Hall is going to spook him too much, as much as it spooks other people. He's like, huh, he's kind of like home. <laughs> and perhaps that's why he hasn't suffered the fate of so many others who suffered horribly not long after holding Hall. The curse of Hall has hit Tywin, not yet in the story, but it does eventually, I suppose. Gregor, Sir Amory, Vargo Hoot. Harrenhal finally met its match with Roose Bolton, perhaps. The ghosts of Harren and his sons were like, 
this guy's all right. <laughs> He's one of us. Maybe they were sad when he left. <laughs> like, oh, Rus is leaving. We like that guy. Speaking of the dead, there's an interesting passage here that, uh, where Arya kind of thinks about that very thing. Do the ravens remember Maester Tothmir? Arya wondered. Are they sad for him? When they quirk at him, do they wonder why he doesn't answer? Perhaps the dead could speak to them in some secret tongue the living could not hear. Well, the, just the idea of being raised here is interesting. Arya doesn't have direct contact with, you know, dead people like other characters will in terms of the whites and maybe the others and, and guys like Beric. Well, I guess well, I, just cor- I just corrected myself. She is going to have <laughs> a connection to the dead with Beric not too long from now. But Beric doesn't speak in any sort of secret tongue the living can't hear. However, it is a question. Like Jon Snow has wondered, you know, about the, the memories the whites may or may not hold. He points to the fact that Joffrey Flowers and Othor remembered something of the Watch's command structure based on who they attacked, things like that. So it's an interesting concept to be considering. Uh, I find it a little funny that it's in this chapter. I mean, we're well before Beric uh, appears on screen as an undead character. So. I don't know. It's a bit peculiar to me. I wonder what you guys think about it. Arya may have fled Lord Roos no matter what. I mean, she may have decided to run off regardless. But once she learned that he was going to give the castle to the Bloody Mummers, that's that sealed the deal, right? She knows that any risk of escape is worth it because staying with the Mummers is a surefire road to... I mean, it's out of the question. A young girl in their service? No. I mean, Rorge had already promised to deliver her horrors that we don't need to repeat. And most of the men in the company are just as bad as Rorge, if not worse. So it's her decision to run is entirely correct. Any risk is worth taking there. A 1% chance of escaping is better than a 0% chance of survival by staying. Now she's going to get a, t- a taste of uh, the, how bad the, ba- the uh, bloody mummers are later through Nymeria's jaws. hey <laughs> she'll taste them that way. She probably didn't need to learn more about them to get the notion that running was the right move. But just in case this chapter adds more atrocities to their ledger of horrors, it's the chapter where we learn the mummers have gone back to all the people they dealt with when they were employed by Tywin and simply said, hey, you're traitors. (laughs) You shouldn't have dealt with us for Lord Tywin because now we're on Lord Roos's side and that means you're traitors. That is just so evil. And this is also a good argument against why Tywin should never have brought them to Westeros in the first place. The collateral damage, the likelihood of them turning on him. It was a mistake strategically because they turned on him and the, the collateral damage inflicted on the Riverlands by just them being so awful uh, piled on top of that. Yeah, well done, Tywin. So Roose Bolton, again, somehow he thinks leeches are helpful to him. He, he's of this belief that they're good for the body, good for the blood. And this is part of why this chapter is as much about him as it is about Arya, if not more so. It's just loaded with clues that he's important. Giving up his own blood to gain strength, culling the weakness in himself, making him seem a little bit like a vampire. It's, it's addition by subtraction, but without any calculation, just put some leeches on and let them fill up. Of course, they'll take the bad blood, not the good blood, because why? (laughs) It's just this inherent arrogance that thinking that the leeches will be or grateful because Roos is giving some of himself to them. Like lesser beings (laughs) don't deserve Roos's blood. 
there's power in King's blood, right? Bruce is, uh, I don't know. There's, there, the, the Boltons used to be kings, so. <laughs> no, no Melisandre nearby to make use of those, those leeches, but the concept is there. It's very interesting. It's, and it's, it's meant to just show how awful he is. There's just all these strange things about Roos that maybe they're not clear why he does it, but it's clear that it's awful. And is this a Bolton family tradition? I mean, not the, maybe not the leeches part. It might be. But the a house with a tradition of flaying probably doesn't stop there, right? They probably have other things they do that are brutal that aren't just flaying, right? I mean, almost every institution that's a product of humanity, every pastime, every aspect of human society has some sort of moral scrutiny attached to it, right? Everything is ruled to some degree by social pressure. The Dreadfort is where those notions of accountability go to die, well, to be tortured to death. Because, I mean, it just, it's always seemed a little odd that such a place even exists. It only works because it's been around so long. You can't have been built recently. <laughs> Recall what I said about how it's not just old supernatural powers awakening. That's a big theme of this book is the old ways returning, old powers returning. But it's also true for these old cultural traditions. The old way of the Ironborn, for example, that's a prominent one. Later, we'll have the rearming of the faith. And supposedly, the Boltons don't really have a room full of human skins, do they? Do they? (laughs) I really wouldn't be surprised if they actually do. Such a thing does exist at the House of Black and White, right? Now, I see no connection between the House of Black and White and House Bolton other than, you know, the, the skinning stuff. But they, you know, and they both do cut off whole faces, which is part of the skinning thing. But Arya's in the middle of these things, and that's interesting that she's facing down the Lord of the Dreadfort in advance of heading to Bravos to, well, learn about that. So a lot of the page duties Roos gives to her are going to resemble the menial tasks that Arya's going to perform in Bravos. You know, pouring wine, just be, being at table, just doing really menial basic tasks. I mean, compare pulling leeches, handling leeches to handling dead bodies at the House of Black and White. So... There's a lot of things that, that are in common, but they're, they're minor things. Still, they, were, they can't help but draw our, our attention to those connections. Later, Roos Bolton's going to expound on how some of the worst traditions of the North actually still exist. So keeping on that theme of, of old ways. Even on this side of the wall, uh, but people know better than to flaunt things like the first night and, well, as he says, even the gods only see half of what people do on Skagos. So not only does the Dreadfort have an unspeakably horrific past, cultivated by a thirst for torture, completely uninhibited by any of that social convention, over thousands of years, they've also apparently spent some time honing their ability to keep that all under wraps, right? I, I'm guessing that Roos wasn't the first one to, to be good at keeping Bolton atrocities quiet. I imagine that's something that's been passed down. And that's changing apparently, because Ramsey does not agree with his father on that. He rejects that notion. He is loud and aggressive and brutal and blunt. He's not subtle. Well, he is a little bit subtle. The South knows itself more than it knows the North and the Iron Islands. And the historians reflect this, right? Or historic histories reflect this. So with apologies to the sister men who suffered greatly at the hands of the North, the Boltons have historically been a purely Northern problem, Right. Their atrocities have been limited, for the most part, to the North. And so the South, that's part of why the South doesn't know as well how bad they are, how bad their history is. The Song of Ice and Fire is one of those rare times when a Bolton is actually loose in the South. So it's, a, it's something that's very outside of normal patterns of history. 
neither side knows what they've done by allowing a Bolton to be loose in the South. Here's a quote. It's said that dire wolves once roamed the North in great packs of a hundred or more and feared neither man nor mammoth. But that was long ago and in another land. It is queer to see the common wolves of the South so bold. Terrible times breed terrible things, my lord. Bolton showed his teeth in something that might have been a smile. Are these times so terrible, maester? Summer is gone and there are four kings in the realm. One king may be terrible, but four? He shrugged. Nan, my fur cloak. This is the line or a line that perhaps inspired the TV version of Chaos is a Ladder. Roos is using the war to move up in the world as skillfully and ruthlessly as anyone else, as good as, as Littlefinger, who is the one who actually says that line on TV, of course. And just the fact that Roos can't even smile properly is another just big clue that he's, he's bad news. I mean, there's so many clues, you don't need that one, but... George is piling it on. He's just leaving no doubt. This man is bad news. I mean, he can't even smile right. Like, what? <laughs> There's another thing that connects him to Tywin, sort of. Like, Tywin doesn't smile. And uh, people who aren't used to smiling are going to look a little awkward than they try to smile. So this is, shows that Bruce Bolton is not very practiced at smiling. It's a, it's a position his face is unused to doing. So Arya is going to slowly get the secrets of the House of Black and White given to her eventually. And that's a point in extreme opposition to Roos here, who is explicitly the type to hoard secrets. The scene in this chapter where he burns a book, according to George R. R. Martin directly, is about that. The book's contents are not terribly relevant. The point is simply that Roos doesn't share, that he is the type of man to destroy things rather than share them. He wants that in for, for itself, no matter how trivial, no matter how unimportant, it's for him only. He doesn't think it, it's not the kind of thing that gets spread around. With Maester Tothmir dead, the Ravens are in the charge of Kyburn. It's likely enough, Roos is already in contact with Tywin at this point. From his perspective, sure, Rob hasn't lost a battle, but he's lost Winterfell and the Lannisters have won at King's Landing. Renly is dead and Stannis' strength is gone. It doesn't take a genius to see that the Lannisters are doing really well, especially because they also now have Highgarden with them. So Roos acts as if he's thinking about it. He's talking to the phrase here and he says, yeah, um, I'll think about what you said, but, and then tells him to leave. But then he immediately starts selling Rob out. It's not super clear because it's done strategically by moving soldiers to a certain place and doing certain things, which is not very clear what that means. He tells Sir Helmut Tallhart to attack Duskendale and to put Castle Derry to the torch. The reader may be fooled by this because Arya hates Castle Derry. It's the site of Lady's execution. And when she hears that name, that's what she thinks about. But this is a ridiculous order designed to trap the Northern Army uh, against the coast, where later Gregor Clegane and Randall Tarley will trap them and crush it. Rob is going to be baffled by this decision when he hears about it. But it's not baffling at all when you know that Roos's goal is to dominate the North. He, Rob should have maybe realized that Roos had turned on him there. But instead, he just is confused and thinks that seems like a really bad decision. He calls it a bad decision rather than a traitorous one, which, oh well, he misread it. So many of the best warriors, ones who could later stand up to the Bolton takeover of the North, are being preemptively slain. That's exactly what's happening with this move. And that's going to culminate at the Red Wedding, where basically the rest of the remaining Northern warriors are slain. The strategic implications of this Duskendale order are, like I said, they're really easy to miss. Because if you don't look at a map, you just think about, oh, issuing troop movements. You may, you may not just gloss over that. But there are other clues to Roos's turning, such as the 
the big one, the hunting of wolves that we mentioned at the beginning. But the detail level here is gives even more evidence. He kills seven adults and two pups, nine wolves in total. That's the number of points on Rob's crown, nine points on the crown of the north, the king of winter, the king of the north and riverlands, nine. And the two pups are surely meant to represent Rickon and Bran, where false news of their death has just reached Arya here in this very chapter. So both his crown and his brothers are dead, or so it seems. In fact, neither of them are dead, but <laughs> it does seem that way. Kyber's another character we'll get into more detail later. We're bringing him up here, but his time at Harrenhal must be noted in light of the things said about him. Though he wore maester's robes, there was no chain about his neck. It was whispered that he had lost it for dabbling in necromancy. He's later going to animate Sir Gregor, as we all know. So there's the necromancy plain as day. But I wonder if he filled out his knowledge of black magic at Harrenhal. Uh, Mad Donnell Lofton was said to have delved into black magic as well. And that was only about, she was taken out, uh, removed from her rule of Harrenhal only about 70 years ago. And uh, so maybe there were some books left behind uh, that were referred to by Kyburn during uh, his time there. And and for, for more evidence of this, well, what name does he give Sir Gregor? Sir Robert Strong, right? Well, who ruled the Lo- the Harrenhal before the Lostons? The Strongs. Hmm. So for whatever reason, Kyburn named his creation after a house that held Harrenhal. So yeah, it's possible he uh, got some additional necromantic um, information from uh, being in Harrenhal. Arya has a pair of interactions with Elmar Frey, who is Roos's squire. The first interaction indicates they uh, they interact regularly. It says that they're you know they, they she shows familiarity and describes several interactions with him in the past. Which and that makes sense. He's Roos's squire and she's his cupbearer, so obviously they're going to be in proximity. The second interaction they have is one of the great jewels of George R. R. M.'s trickery in this book. Quote: My princess, he sobbed. We've been dishonored, Aini says. There was a bird from the twins. My lord father says I'll need to marry someone else or be a septon. A stupid princess, she thought. That's nothing to cry over. My brothers might be dead, she confided. Elmar, Elmar gave her a scornful look. No one cares about a serving, a serving girl's brothers. It was hard not to hit him when he said that. I hope your princess dies, she said and ran off before he could grab her. Of course, her brothers are not a serving girl's brothers. They're princes of higher rank than Elmar Frey. And Arya herself is the stupid princess. She was betrothed to Elmar. He didn't know it was her, and she didn't know about it at all. She didn't know she was a betrothed to anyone. It was arranged way back in a Game of Thrones Catelyn 9 while Arya was in King's Landing learning from Sirio. She never heard any about it, anything about it. The reason for the broken betrothal, of course, is yet another stunning turn of events and blow to Rob's campaign, All again, all packed into this one chapter. The news that Rob has broken his vow to marry a fray. The more important of the two marriages agreed to when Lord Walder joined Rob and gave his army crossing. The other, of course, being Arya's. If this is your second time through the books, the weight of this chapter must feel great. It's a very heavy chapter. A lot of us, self-included, didn't see that Rob's campaign basically ended right here in this chapter. That, but that is indeed the case. If anything ended it, besides his death, you know, <laughs> the Red Wedding itself, I think this is the point. And on top of all this, again, good Lord, a lot happens in this chapter. She has a peculiar moment at the Weirwood tree when she prays. It's a totally different part of the chapter here, totally different thing, but it's awesome. Quote, 
For a long moment, there was no sound but the wind and the water and the creak of leaf and limb. And then, far, far off, beyond the god's wood and the haunted towers and the immense stone walls of Harrenhal, from somewhere out in the world came the long, lonely howl of a wolf. Goose prickles rose on Arya's skin, and for an instant she felt dizzy. Then, so faintly, it seemed as if she heard her father's voice. When the snows fall and the white winds blow, the lone wolf dies, but the pack survives, he said. But there is no pack, she whispered to the weirwood. Bran and Rickon were dead. The Lannisters had Sansa. John had gone to the wall. I'm not even me now. I'm Nan. You are Arya of Winterfell, daughter of the North. You told me you could be strong. You have the wolf blood in you. What is all that about? The dizziness, the conversation? It's really interesting. And it's, it's supernatural, uh, probably. Uh, you know, unless it's all in her head. But I, whatever it is, it gives her strength. She breaks her broomstick, resolves to leave, feeling the call of the wolf pack. It really emboldens her. This is, ser- this is It's a serious trope buster, though, this exit of hers. Earlier, I said it was good that she rejected the power over smaller people she gained by having Lord Bolton's ear. But here she uses it to help her, herself escape when the stable boy balks at giving them horses late at night. Lord Bolton is not in the habit of being questioned by servants. She crossed her arms. The stable boy was still looking at the flayed man. He knew what it meant. And it's as simple as that. As she takes the last step of her transition from Nan to Arya, there's the proverbial gatekeeper, this guard that is preventing them from escaping. In so many stories, the being at the gate is, you know, a troll or a sphinx or just, it's just a guy in a ragged fur cloak this time wearing chainmail. But they always require payment, right? <laughs> they always got to pay the gatekeeper, no matter what form the story places. You got to pay the troll toll to get in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and of course, it's no coincidence that the token of entry she's given to the House of Black and White is the device she uses to pass this trial. She kills him. And says, Valar Morgulis. And yeah, <laughs> well done, Arya. Clever, clever girl. Uh, some, a few other notes here. I think it's important to note uh, Roos orders that Derry is burnt when he does that and, and the people put to the sword. He says, in King Rob's name. So not only is he undermining Rob's war efforts in terms of strategy and logistics and soldiers, but he's actually trying to sully Rob's reputation in terms of being a decent guy, being a compassionate, you know, just ruler. So it's, it's another way that Roos is working against Rob that's pretty subtle, uh, but very noteworthy. Good wife Amabel, she subs up the ridiculousness of, of these punishments, but not in a way that, you know, not in a way that speaks that to her hating it. It's just, she goes along with it. It's so bad. Here's the quote. Harrenhal pulls them all down in the end, Lord Tywin's won now. He'll be marching back with all his power, and then it will be his turn to punish the disloyal. Jeez, I mean, right? <laughs> it's, she doesn't intend. Uh, or she doesn't intend to Amabel pointing out the cyclical nature of war and how anyone involved can be painted as criminal. If they, I mean, if they use Roos's logic, right? This, this is they're all just doing like the nobility would do, even though they're the ones being carved up by this process and this unjust system that they're living under. She's reveling in it, even though it's going to get her killed. It's awful and unjust. It's like a Stockholm syndrome almost. They're grateful for being, for the boot stomping on them. In another universe, 
great call by Joe Buckley here. Kyburn, if Kyburn had stayed with Roos Bolton and gotten to be the maester at the Dreadfort, oh boy, yikes. That's a, a match made in hell. Good thing it didn't happen. Him pairing up with Cersei is bad enough. Couple of random thoughts and takes from y'all. Looks like uh, several super chats here. Thanks, y'all. Alicia LMH, uh, River Missoula, 666. Thanks. Just wishing everybody a happy solstice. Catherine Hansen first, Seth. Catching you live, a.k.a. the one where the kids are sleeping. <laughs> Very good, yes. I really liked that. That was really funny, yes. I appreciate that. I know a lot of you guys have uh, lots of real-life duties that uh, keep you from catching these live sometimes. So I really appreciate when you can and when you let us know. And she's uh, watching from Norway, oh, so it's a bit cool. later there, too. Ainsley Mickel John Griffiths says, Ashe is the best, and we certainly agree. Scott Wartman says, If Tywin brought the Bloody Mummers, did he bring Dothraki across the poison water before Daenerys? Technically, he did because there's a few <laughs> Dothraki and the Bloody Mummers, only a few. But yeah, uh, that's funny. I never thought about that. Scott Warman also says that Alice Rivers was there too um, in, return, uh, in terms of mentioning Kyburn and Harrenhal and Black Magic. That's a good point. Alice Rivers did a lot of magical things there. We had a whole episode on her, the Witch Queen of Harrenhal in our Fire and Blood uh, series. So Notably, you've worn your Winterfell shirt you're wearing now. Yeah. Two other times, one of which was in Alice Rivers. Oh, really? Did I? Yeah. I why I wore that one for that one? I don't know why, but it. Is, I looked at the spreadsheet, and just fun fact for everyone. <laughs> right on. So, speaking of, shout out to Hema Helmuth, aka Tommy Pappas, who did a history of Westeros spreadsheet for the shirts we wore to help us track all that. And in, in that, we have sort of been able to, well, he was sort of able to track down where we purchased a lot of them. So if you're ever curious where we got one of our shirts, some of them are out of print now, but you could always let ask us through email or in our Facebook group or, or even on Flick or, or our Slack channel or any other various ways you can contact us and, and ask us about a particular one. And if we're able to tell you, we will. In line with this chapter, as I've said, we're going to do a Where Are They Now for Arya's Time in Hall, And that is going to be recorded shortly after the recording of this episode. So that should be out uh, during the week, along, probably alongside the episode itself, maybe slightly after. It'll contain, well, things like the Dothraki Bloody Mummers and the other Bloody Mummers and the people working at Hall and Gregor's men and things like that. So we'll keep track of where they're all at and helps us keep track of so many characters in this story, right? Tree Girl says, in this chapter... The night wolf is born. That's her interpretation of what's happening in that scene. It doesn't, you know, fully explain why Arya is dizzy and what's really happening as far as the supernatural underpinnings of, of that speech there or that communication with the tree. But symbolically speaking, I definitely agree. She snaps the broomstick over her knee, feels that power of being part of the pack and all that. So yeah, I agree with that. But also she notes that the, the way she's lying to Gendry she exaggerates some things to get Gendry to come with to compel him to escape. And this is maybe a little bit of groundwork for the lying game, which the waif is going to say she's bad at lying. And uh, well, <laughs> she was good enough in this case. She lied to Gendry successfully and then she lied to the guard. So imagine when she's really good at lying. Stephanie points out that note how Arya already has no qualms about killing. She doesn't really have much. She doesn't really feel much when she kills this guy. And yeah, I mean, that's just, it's, 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 it's part of it's a defense mechanism. You know, if she were to feel 
suffering or feel bad about herself for killing, then, you know, that would just make it harder for her to do the thing she has to do. But of course, most people would feel bad about killing, I think. And that is uh, something that's different about Arya. It makes her interesting as a character. Stephanie the Peerless also makes an interesting point about one of the reasons the phrase may have turned on Rob, besides the more obvious reasons of the breaking of the uh, marriage contract, but also the loss of Winterfell and also the losing of the war, but also maybe the lack of supplies. It's mentioned casually here that a lot of houses are going to suffer when winter comes. And that problem is obviously going to be larger in the North. And that's obviously going to be a bigger deal now that Winterfell has been sacked. So it's just more evidence for Rob's campaign and kingdom completely collapsing. And another reason to switch sides. Stefan B. also um, points to the breaking of the broomstick as a meaningful moment because it's, it harkens to her keeping needle later as she sort of uh, puts a lot of stock in weapons as part of her identity and part of her uh, shifting of identities. John O'Donnell says from Facebook says, this is my favorite chapter in the entire series. It's the sort of culmination of the lessons George has given the reader. Way back at the start of Clash, we had Var... Uh, Varus and Tyrion's conversation about subtext and the riddle about power. Here we have subtle conversations and a study of power and what gives it and how it transitions as events unfold. And in the theme of identity and suffering of the small folk and all that, the chapter really has it all. I agree. Yeah, John, I'm with you there for sure. This chapter really does have it all. We've covered a huge amount of time just on this one, but we are about to move on. A couple more notes first. Nina reminds us that the phrase, we're looking for a way out of their alliance because of the loss of Winterfell, right? That's a, they, they make a big deal out of Jane being the major insult. And to most of the phrase who are not thinking strategically, they're just, you know, they're more, uh, the insult matters more to them. But someone like Lord Walter himself, who's thinking of the big picture, the insult matters to him because he's a very prideful guy. But the loss of Winterfell is a bigger deal strategically. The phrase and Bolton's made their peace with Tywin on the basis that Robin lost the war, Right. Presumably the thought was that there would be no real danger from the South as the Lannisters are reestablishing dominance. They, they seem to be winning and thoroughly so. The danger for the phrase then quite clearly is Tywin, the winning side. And, you know, they were on the other side. So they have to, for their own survival, from their perspective, they got to play nice with Tywin. Uh, the Boltons are important, you know, and that helps because they're apparently playing nice with Tywin too. Uh, but another factor emerges that Tywin wants to give the North to the son of Sansa and Tyrion. That's probably already on his mind, which puts him in conflict with the Boltons in the phrase in a, in a way that neither that is not out in the open at this point, but is something that both sides may be aware of and are planning for. The fact that they'll come into conflict over Winterfell, ownership of it. Nina also points out that Walder Frey learned about ditching on a, ba- on a rebellion gone bad early in the process from his father, who, in the time of the second Blackfire Rebellion, the one that took place during the Mystery Night, which was basically never a rebellion. It, it was uh, about to be, and then it petered out so quickly that, well, Lord Frey just walked away from it. He's like, uh, time to leave. So that's kind of happening again. We got history repeating itself here. So he pulled out at the right time. Just but, um, as, what's that? But um, that's right. Because Jeremy Gabriel caught that joke on Facebook. He said, 
Walder learning to pull out? I don't think so. <laughs> no <laughs> one with that many kids has learned yeah. to pull out. <laughs> All right. Good time to transition to our next chapter. Sansa 8. The gang divides the spoils of war, a.k.a. the one with Sansa's new hairnet. The throne room was a sea of jewels, furs, and bright fabrics. And in that sea, a bunch of people congratulating themselves for a victory in war that, for most of them, was most was truly a, really a political victory. Very few of them did actually fought. Uh, many of those who faced the most worst dangers are not present for the accolades. Tyrion, of course, but many others as well. Sansa herself, given how she is treated as no better than a commodity, fits cynically well into a scene where prizes are divided and ownership of titles and claims are rearranged, fitting, too, that she is set aside for a, quote, greater prize, Marjorie. In a recurring tradition, a princess outside of the royal family, a qualifier necessary because of all the incest, <laughs> is accompanied by a sworn sword, and some of them join the Kingsguard. Loras joins the Kingsguard alongside Marjorie becoming the betrothed to the king, and that's happened in a few other cases. For example... We have Ashara Dane and Arthur Dane at court around the same time. We have Prince Lewin Martell coming to court with Elia. And I think there's a few other examples, but that, that should give you the idea. Lancel Lannister is given Castle Derry. We just saw Roose send orders for the Lannister garrison there to be slaughtered. So Lancel is in bad shape, and he's about to take hold, take possession of a castle that's in really bad shape, too. It's probably in Winterfell-type bad shape, but... Uh, you know, in a better location. Seven of Joff's ship captains are honored, and Sansa thinks it's because they survived, and that's it. Which, you know, that is something. She uh, she thinks that's uh, no small feat, and I gotta agree. I mean, maybe there's some skill involved in that, probably some skill involved, but they're definitely lucky to survive the Battle of Blackwater as ship captains. While Tyrion's lying on his deathbed, Littlefinger receives the exact reward Tyrion falsely offered him way back at the start of this book, which was Harrenhal and Lord Paramency of the Trident. We've just seen Arya leave Harrenhal and all the horror of that place. Sansa is dubious that Littlefinger is going to be able to take possession of the castle and rule effectively. Not just because of the Riverlord's attitude towards him, but also because of the curse. Now, here's a famous line that comes to us thanks to Tywin. Well, maybe thanks to Tywin's horse. The Lord of Casterly Rock made such an impressive figure that it was a shock when his destrier dropped a load of dung right at the base of the throne. That's not so subtle, is it? <laughs> Much has been made of this moment in the fandom over the years. Uh, a summary of some of these ideas. George is telling us that Tyrion, or Tywin is not a good ruler. He's crapping all over the throne using it for his family, not the realm. He is not what Aegon the Conqueror intended from a ruler or from a hand of the king. Uh, he's just lording over people by riding in on his horse. I mean, he could have walked, but nope, he's coming in on his horse. And the scene itself that's about to play out is, it's horseshit, right? <laughs> so many of these awards given out are undeserved or exaggerated. Rewards scale based on your station. Uh, for one example of, of the horseshit here, if you're a commoner and you kill a lord in battle, you get a reward. But a knight or a lord killing another lord in battle gets an even bigger reward. Sometimes they get that lord's lands. Sir Philip Foote becomes Lord Philip Foote of Night Song after killing Lord Bryce Caron, for example. Bryce Caron was uh, a knight of the Rainbow Guard, or a lord of the Rainbow Guard in this case. Both. So it's also a bit of a joke playing on that, uh, that phrase, the king eats, the hand takes the shit. The hand's horse is taking the shit here. 
but same difference, same joke. And Tywin also shits on his own son. Zero mention of Tyrion in the scene outside of Sansa thinking of him. While he lies in pain, slowly recovering, fearing he will be forgotten or at least underappreciated, he's right. This chapter comes before we get that fear from him, though. He, he's coming, his chapter's a few from now, and that's when he's going to be paranoid about missing out. And he's right. He's, it's worse than he thinks, even. His father doesn't acknowledge his, his contributions to the war at all in this scene where people are just tripping over themselves to give each other praise. So another significant moment comes, though, when Joff cuts himself on the Iron Throne in rage and is met with a yell of, the throne denies him, and he is no king. That man is quickly killed, and Joffrey is rushed away, crying, asking for his mother. <laughs> I mean, all he was handling himself pretty well. He was graceful and poised in handing out these surprises, but it just vanishes in a second as soon as he hurts himself. So not only did he flee the battle and nearly cost them everything, he flees from this ceremony that's designed to make him and others look more brave. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so bad. He can't even feign bravery in a ceremony. <laughs> this is fairly blatant symbolism, right? The guy yelling, he's no true king, is right. <laughs> the throne denies him. He's not up to facing down something as minor as a flesh wound. What kind of king can't handle that? What kind of queen can't handle that? It's a tough job. A flesh wound is nothing compared to the stress and anxiety and pressure of being a king. Even when you're a kid. Hating Joffrey aside... Bleeding all over the throne as he divvies up a new kingdom, a kingdom just worn one by blood. That would have been pretty badass if he had just stood there bleeding all over the throne, continuing to do his thing. That would have looked cool from a lot of people's perspectives. Like, he's tough. Instead, he can't even, he runs off yelling for his mother. It's, it's really, he's really proving that he is indeed no king at all. And of course, part of that is uh, wrapped up in the subtext that he's not actually Robert's son. He'll certainly offer even more evidence that he's unworthy in A Storm of Swords. I mean, there's plenty more to come before he finally dies. But for now, it's enough that we point to where George has left us. The throne has been won by force, yet it sits empty. It's not over, in other words. This throne needs more blood. More blood is going to be spilled over this throne, Joffrey's included. Well, metaphorically, of course, because he's going to be strangled. (laughs) The man who yells about Joff's unworthiness sounds a lot like the shepherd during the Dance of the Dragons. And uh, that's noteworthy. I don't have a whole lot to say about that, but angry religious dudes yelling about prophecy and worthiness and being uh, like the street preacher kind of guy, just yelling no matter how against everyone else they are. Kind of similar. Varus is seen talking to Littlefinger, and it's a reminder here that Varus has been off page for a while. He's been... We haven't heard him speak a line in several chapters. He's been, he hasn't been a part of the battle. So that's kind of interesting. He's been a bit of a notable absence from him. I suppose he was preparing uh, to run if Stannis won the battle. Like, obviously, no one knew the battle was going to be won until it was. I don't know that Varys could have been aware of st- uh, the armies sneaking up on Stannis. I think that's outside of his scope. Um, he may, maybe could have known, but I, I doubt it. So I think he was legitimately concerned as to who was going to win the battle. And he was prepared to leave if Stannis was the victor because he can't, Stannis would not have had Varys continue in his position, almost certainly. Sansa is, of course, eager to run off, eager to leave, and briefly thinks being set aside is good. Danto sets her straight just as he continues to manipulate her for Littlefinger and a decisive 
moment comes. Santa is staying put for now, unlike most of the other POVs. Most of the other characters are shifting in location. Uh, For her, the shift is her role in Joffrey's wedding, that she's not going to be. She's no longer going to be a bride, but she's going to be an unwitting participant in his murder. And he tells her they'll escape during the wedding and that wearing the hairnet is important. It's weird, right? Reading it the first time through, why on earth could wearing that hairnet be important, (laughs) right? But we do know. And he gives a hint. It's hard to believe because, like he says, it's magic. Really? Well, yep. (laughs) Here's the quote. Lovelier than you know, sweet child. It's magic, you see. It's justice you hold. It's vengeance for your father. Dantos leaned close and kissed her again. It's home. Man, there's a lot of Dantos kissing her. Yeah, he's gross, right? Yeah, I just have to point that out. (laughs) The bit about vengeance is our best clue. But we also saw enchanted amethyst against poison in the Danny chapter in Karth. So it's also made of silver. So magic, not really. But it's more just poison. I mean, it's a little magic. Yeah, sort of. Maybe. Home, though. No, definitely not. It is not home. It's Littlefinger's home. That's, of course, that lie that's been carried over for this entire arc of Santa's pre-escape. Joe Buckley says that George takes a whole paragraph to emphasize how the courtiers are dressed in their best finery as if to prove a point. This is the kind of display that Sansa would have once been fooled by. She would have loved all this display and all the pageantry and glory of a court um, coming out to celebrate a victory. That would have been something that she would have been really all about not that long ago. But now not only is she not swayed by it, not moved by it, but she doesn't even really, it's not even mentioned what she's wearing which is a a great point caught by one of our commenters. And that's something that she normally cares a lot about. She thinks about what she's going to wear and the importance of presenting herself. It seems to be mattering less to her. Not that it doesn't matter to her at all anymore, because it does matter. As we see from people like Melisandre, the trappings of power do, are, are, you know, power does flow from them in no small measure. And Sansa's aware of that, but she's, she's emphasizing it less. Before it was like the only thing, you know, it was like everything. But now it's, she's putting it in, in uh, perspective. Joe um, also points out that the Tyrells seemingly have a checklist that they easily complete in this chapter. In a short stroke, they're instantly invested in all the major components of governmental rule. Loras on the Kingsguard, Mace on the small council, Marjorie is about to become queen, and they've got family members left over and more. Like as we see in the next book, Tywin and Cersei are both going to be a little concerned with Tyrell incursions. And this, they're perhaps the best example of what I was talking about, how their, their, their rewards are kind of undeserved. They didn't lose much. They switched sides uh, from, well, they didn't even really switch sides. They just took a side. They, they left Renly when Renly died, and then they joined the Lannisters and got to attack Stannis from behind in a very favorable battle situation and are reaping huge rewards for that, just for placing their power on the, on the Lannister side. It's more about who they are than what they did. Another small point here that's worth catching, there's a lot of little tidbits here in terms of who's getting prizes and who's getting mentioned that are worth mentioning. Uh, here's one. Lothor Brune to be raised to the estate of knighthood and granted land and keep in the Riverlands at war's end. That's one that is pretty easy to slip by. Lothor Brune is working for Littlefinger and he seems to be a decent guy, not a good guy but a decent guy. At least he does a good job of keeping Marillion from uh, raping Sansa, uh, or at least abusing her. And 
uh, he's a character that's still alive, still around. So we want to know what happens to him. And if he's ever going to get this, this keep and land in the Riverlands, uh, he'd have to stay with Littlefinger for that. Um, or maybe, maybe he doesn't because it's promised him anyway. So we'll see about that. It's something to keep an eye on. Joe says that this is that there's a case to be made here that Littlefinger is the largest villain in the entire series, at least to this point, and also an upjump fool who isn't nearly as smart as he thinks he is, because so much of where he where he is now is pure luck, but a lot of what he's done is very skillful, and this is one of those examples. This Bitterbridge trip, he plays masterfully. You know, you can hate Littlefinger. I do. I mean, you know, he's a great character, but he is good at what he does quite often he pulls off really really incredible plans and as we said leaving to get out of the city during the battle and coming back as lord of Harrenhal, having arranged this great marriage he's he's basically recognized as one of the heroes of the battle without having done any fighting partly because of his smart planning uh, and creating this helping create this alliance plus the the uh, apparently the renly ghost thing was his idea too all right, some more thoughts from y'all. Uh, Brendan Lannister, The Bloodline, says, in this chapter, it talks of Tyrion said to be dying, then immediately the hero calls out Peter Baelish. <laughs> he thinks maybe that's a clue that um, that this is one of the, or rather one of the pieces of evidence that it was Littlefinger who sent Mandon Moore to kill Tyrion. It's, it's one of those things that we still don't have an answer on. Some people think it's Cersei, some people think it's Littlefinger, some people think it you know, can see both sides. I, I, as I've said, I lean toward Littlefinger too, but I can see the arguments for Cersei. Nina says it was back in Ned 11 where he thinks of the throne's bloodiness, um, meaning the times where people have died on the throne. And she goes ahead, she gives us a nice accounting of, of those examples. Um, there have been, she says, there's been at least four others severely injured on the Iron Throne, not counting Aegon, who at least cut himself once when he was reading that Dornish letter. Magor was found dead on the throne and the throne may have been Part of that may have been suicide. I do agree with Nina. I think Negor was a suicide, but we, we talk about it in our Fire and Blood coverage. Viserys I cut his hand so badly that he had to have some fingers amputated. And Rhaenyra was reportedly cut herself on the throne as soon as she took it after um, one of the battles of the Dance of Dragons. However, I, Nina says this was probably didn't happen, and I agree. Because it said that she was wearing armor and then she was bleeding from the leg. And it's like, well, how is she going to be bleeding when she's wearing armor? So I think, uh, and it was written by a source unkind to her. So I I tend to agree that was probably made up. However, the lie works because it has happened so many times. And then, of course, last but definitely not least, King Scab himself, Aerys II, cut himself on the throne many times. Among those bending the knee are Lord Celtigar, who his bending of the knee sets up the Claw Isle looting debate between Davos and Stannis and Sir Axel Florent that comes early next book. Orane Waters bends the knee, and Orane Waters, of course, is uh, was is a bastard of House Valarian, and the Valarians also were didn't bend the knee, but the Lord Valarian was killed in the battle. So his bastard has switched sides. As we know, Orane is going to become Cersei's uh, Lord Admiral, and then he's going to run off with her new ships. And what he does later, who knows? We'll see. Will it? Here's a quote. 
Quillet, a grizzled man-at-arms in the service of Sir Harry Swift, who'd pulled his master from beneath his dying horse and defended him against a dozen attackers. Talk about a good man in service to bad causes, right? <laughs> That's a theme that has larger implications than this one. But Sir Harris is one of the most annoying, useless dudes we see. And this is uh, Willet earning his reward. Uh, he got, like, armor. And his sons get to be knights or squires. Like, this is an example of doing some great service, but not actually getting a reward that's equal to what someone of higher rank would have gotten. Somehow, Sir Harris is going to end up being master of coin, and that's going to make him even more annoying and not more useful, though. So, Willet doing a brave service, but he didn't do the realm any favors. Tree Girl points out that Sansa is... Uh, is Oh, God. oh, here it is. Well, I, I earlier referred to someone had referred to Sansa's not thinking about her own garb. And it was Tree Girl who pointed that out. Good catch by her. Stefan B. points out that Littlefinger's skill with money is applied here in asking for Harrenhal as his reward. He's asking for Harrenhal at a time when its value is at its nadir. As Sansa thinks, it's, you know, the river lords aren't going to be loyal to him. It's got the curse. No one rules it right now. It's, it's, it's got money problems, blah, blah, blah. So it's the kind of place that if it were developed and, and had more tax revenue, it could make a man really powerful or a woman really powerful. But it's at a low point in terms of its value. Like its stock price is, as low, is at a particular low point. So it's a buyer's market and, and Littlefinger seizes on that. It'll be more valuable later. And Archmaester Rennie says... Here, it's a line from Cersei. You should have learned by now, none of us get the things we want. <laughs> and Archmaester Rennie suggests that that might be Cersei's truest line ever. <laughs> yeah, it might be. Cersei is pretty good at the, uh, the fatalism, isn't she? And that covers Santa 8. Yeah, indeed. A lot quicker through that one than <laughs> through Arya 10, right? <laughs> but we knew it would. Um, I just wanted to say um, there's been a lot of discussion about, you know, the plan for Joffrey to be poisoned, you know, and there was a notable um, comment that said George said in an interview that the intent was that it would look like Joffrey just choked and it was only because of Cersei's paranoia that Tyrion was accused. Oh, OK. Interesting. So they point. didn't necessarily expect Joffrey, Tyrion to be blamed for it. Or uh, Sansa, maybe. Yeah. So I just think that's interesting they're comparing it to the show where it's really obvious about the poison they would i mean sansa would still think that she's implicated she wouldn't know that they didn't maybe intend for that or that they did intend for that because she knows she's wearing the poison and that would encourage her to run off <laughs> that's an interesting point yeah i didn't yeah. know that george had made that clarification no i didn't either so anyways continuing on to yes. theon six theon six the one where ramsey captures theon aka the gang sax winterfell First line is. Maester Lewin came to him when the first scouts were seen outside the walls. Lewin argues convincingly, almost, that Theon should yield. So Lewin, Lewin gets like the Lamy Award for successful yielding arguments. Uh, he actually makes good points, unlike Lamy. <laughs> so why did we name the Lamy Award after the good yielding? I don't know. Because Lamy is such a... He's the avatar of yielding. The theme of Theon's pathos manifesting in his tongue, stomach, and appetite continues, quote, Theon stared at the platter of oat cakes, honey and blood sausage they'd brought him to break his fast. Another sleepless night had left his nerves raw, and the very sight of food sickened him. 
This takes a serious turn later on when he's not even capable of eating normally later because his teeth are hardly there. So yeah, he really and, should have eaten while he could. <laughs> <laughs> insults and nausea alike. Major now become next to nothing later. In light of all his trauma, of course, it's, you know, this is small things like nausea are nothing compared to all that. And recall that it's not just the obvious trauma of all the physical torment, but his overwhelming guilt over the things he's done in this book, things that are not fully uh, guilting him the way they will later. Theon decides he'll make a last stand and hopes his threat to hang Beth Cassell works, though he knows it probably won't. Unsurprisingly, not many are excited to join him in this. Wex does shame people into helping by crossing that line and staying with Theon. Not nearly as well as Tyrion, but Tyrion's cause wasn't hopeless. But still, it reminds me, Wex and Pod. Yeah, Pod gets a lot of acclaim, but I think Wex deserves a lot as well. Theon claims he has no choice. He's almost not wrong. He did have a choice before, but with the castle about to be surrounded, he's reduced to the option the one reminds him of, which is the Night's Watch. He acknowledges to his other men, the ones that aren't staying, that they need to leave now or never. But he never really considers taking that chance himself. He does not want to give the castle up. It's like a two-pronged attack from his own psyche. He wants to prove himself to his father and to be a Stark and giving up Winterfell, giving up both of those things. Well, in his mind, they do. In fact, staying is giving up both of those things because he can't possibly hold it. Here's a quote from Sir Roderick. Sir Roderick's, knuck- Sir Roderick's knuckles had gone white, but after a moment, he took his hand off the sword hilt. Truly, I have lived too long. And that reminds me of a quote from The Dance of the Dragons. You have lived too long, Nuncle. On that much, we agree, Damon replied. Then the old prince bid Caraxes bend his neck and climbed stiffly onto his back. So he notices, so the comparison, obviously, is people who are just worn down by the things they've had to do in life. Even the rogue prince Damon Targaryen feels that way, a guy who lived his life as a pretty bloodthirsty man. So it's no surprise that Sir Roderick is just worn down by all this He's much older than Damon, and his daughter is being threatened, whereas Damon is not in that situation in his time. He notices the heads of the Miller's boys staring at him while Beth cries nearby, and it makes him speed up. Neither the living nor the dead children can he bear. He can't look at what he's doing nor what he's done. Actually, maybe correct myself slightly, Damon had just had his lover threatened by his own wife. <laughs> so it's similar. It's not his daughter or his sister, but it's something. So throughout his entire arc, Theon has had lots of choices, but so often he acts as if he doesn't. He often acts as like he's only got one choice here. It's part of his extreme narcissism. He tells himself that what choice did I have as a way to avoid guilt or as a way to avoid responsibility. As for the choice to join the watch, I recall, I definitely recall myself thinking how much sense it would make for Theon to join the watch. The first time I read the book, I said, I was thinking, yeah, of course. Night's Watch is where a lot of characters are going to end up because, of course, over time, the others are going to be more important in the story. And, you know, also thinking that it made sense, too, because John is now beyond the wall and we need a maybe we need a POV at the wall. Of course, we did need a POV at the wall, but George gives us Sam for that instead. Apparently, I didn't learn the lesson of Ned Stark at the time, who also appeared to be going to the Night's Watch, but did not. So... Theon, the skilled narcissist that he is, latches onto this idea that the watch would be a good place for him. He, he manages to elect himself Lord Commander within 60 seconds of hearing the idea. <laughs> Check this quote out. I have black garb aplenty. Once I tear the krakens off, even my horse is black. I could rise high in the watch, 
chief of rangers, likely even lord commander. Let Asha keep bloody islands. They're as dreary as she is. <laughs> yep. Interestingly, though, before he thinks of how good it would be for him to, on a personal level, he thinks on how the watch is a noble and honorable calling, something he clearly learned from the Starks. That is not something his, the Ironborn nor his father taught him. I think this part of what, this is part of what sold it for me, uh, meaning the idea that Theon would go to the wall on my first read. Because it's a chance at redemption, a chance to do what a Stark would do. Go jo- take the black. He, he could be more of a Stark by doing that than all these other attempts that go nowhere. But of course, this notion of taking the black goes away pretty quickly because it's interrupted by the arrival of Ramsay Bolton and his surprise attack. I also recall thinking how odd it was that this Reek character showed up with an army. And well, so did Theon. Quote. The flayed man of the Dreadfort. Reek had belonged to the bastard of Bolton before his capture, Theon recalled. It was hard to believe that a vile creature like him could sway the Boltons to change their allegiance, but nothing else made sense. I couldn't conceive how this was possible. Reek being Ramsay, that cleared that all up. Like this quote says, nothing else made sense, right? Nothing else made sense other than Reek actually being Ramsay, but we thought Ramsay was dead. The death toll includes Sir Roderick, Leobold Tallhart, who is uncle of Benfred, who Theon captured and had drowned. That's the wild hares. And, and also killed is the young Lord Clay Serwin. Remember, his father died at Harrenhal after being captured and, and wounded at the Green Fork uh, by Tywin. That's a good example of Roose's plans working out better than he could have hoped. The house closest to Winterfell lost its lord and then their, their heir right, you know, in a short span of time. The house is now in the hands of Clay's older sister, who is apparently extremely shy and not exactly the type that seems likely to stand up to the Boltons. Side note, in the show, it's the, it's the Kerwins who uh, Ramsay flays because they refuse to pay their taxes in that scene where he kind of argues with his father. And Ram- even Bruce is like, mm, dial it down a notch, buddy. <laughs> Ramsay also drops a hint how he was hoping Manderley would be present. He clearly wants to kill Manderley, and we know why. Recall that the, the dispute over the Hornwood lands started after Roos went south and that was, so Ramsey was in charge of all that. The private war against the Manderleys over the, over the Dreadfort, over the uh, Hornwood lands was mostly carried out by Ramsey and Wyman. And that's the groundwork for the much more prominent Bolton-Manderley intrigue that's coming in A Dance of Dragons and Beyond. This, this early fighting between them is going to preface much bigger fighting in The Winds of Winter. And speaking of dropping hints, good Lord, Theon is so thick when it comes to his pride. Wow. Again, it reminds me of Cersei. Ramsay is standing there with 500 armed loyal men, having just explained who he really is. And Theon starts framing a threat because Ramsay wants his girl. Let that sink in. He starts to threaten a man calling himself a Bolton, a man from the Dreadfort who has an army with him. I don't even think the first two things, Bolton or Dreadfort, matter. If someone has... 500 men with him and you don't <laughs> you're wrong and he's mad he's getting mad he's like you're gonna give me that i'm mad. you know like give him what he wants <laughs> wouldn't have mattered really honestly probably yeah, well, do all matter, this anyway yeah no matter what his reaction was if he capitulated or angry or what but the point is theon is just so dense that he doesn't get the obvious here right it's like dude hello <laughs> Now, I'll repeat that no one deserves what Theon got at the hands of Ramsay, but it's pretty amazing how he just kind of dives headfirst into this dungeon. <laughs> He's like, yeah, 
he's so wrapped up in his pride upholding this high opinion of himself that minor insults register and set him off like that. But the overwhelming danger staring him in the face, nope, doesn't see it. Does not see it. And with that, Dion is taken down, which we don't mind. And Winterfell is burned, which we do mind. And Lewin is speared and ridden over while trying to reach Theon. Ugh, Lewin, you're too good. Who did they think it was, I wonder? Meaning when Ramsay showed up looking like this, quote. His helm and gorget were wrought in the shape of a man's face and shoulders, skinless and bloody, mouth open in a silent howl of anguish. Ramsay says he didn't let them see his face until the last minute. But that armor, ooh, it's really ornate, right? Theon calls him Red Helm before he learned who it was. So Roderick must have been a bit puzzled, too. He, he thought he knew Ramsay was dead, and Domerick Bolton had been dead for a long time. So who could this guy be wearing Bolton armor? Roos is in the South. But it wasn't the type of confusion that made him suspicious. Oh, well. It may seem hard to believe that Ramsay could sell the lie that the Ironborn burned Winterfell, but we have to keep in mind how hard it is for evidence to be shared and spread in, in a setting like this. Sure, there's dead Ironborn in the castle and survivors in Roderick's army to tell the story, but without evidence, everything, literally everything is hearsay. Everything comes down to their word against the word of a high lord, a high lord who will silence them if they speak up and they have no other authority to turn to. So a peaceful land, a quiet people is how Roos is going to keep the story from spreading because they know if they talk, they're going to be silenced. Using Beth as a hostage is dirty, but it's worth thinking about Theon's claim that he was a hostage. I mean, I agree with Roderick that Theon had no cause to revenge himself on the Starks. They treated him fairly. Robert Baratheon's the one who sent Theon to be uh, a ward, not Ned Stark. But the problem isn't that Theon has no argument at all. It's that his argument comes way, way short. Because being forced to live away from your home for a decade, even in a good home, is a big deal. That's not something we can shrug at. But being taken away from your home when you're 10, I mean, taken away from your home when you're 10, that's hugely formative, right? That's a big deal. But Theon blows away any sympathy he might have earned from that by just way overrating his own trauma and comparing it to trauma that's far greater than his. And Beth Cassell ironically survives because of Ramsay Bolton, but she, like many others, probably might be wishing she hadn't because, well, she is currently, if she's alive, a prisoner at the Dreadful. Like a lot of other of the people at the, of the Winterfell who were captured here, a lot of the women, old Nan even might still be alive in the dungeons of the Dreadfort, which I want her to be alive, but I don't want her to be suffering that. Now, here's some interesting, here's an interesting moment. Cross-cultural world building plus a note on perspective uh, in religious belief here. It's a quote that I think we should check this out. The Dithraki believe the stars are, spir are spirits of the valiant dead, Theon said. Maester Lewin had told them that a long time ago. Dothraki? The horse lords across the narrow sea. Oh, them. Black Lauren frowned through his beard. Savages believe all manner of foolish things. Mm -hmm. This coming from a guy who believes in the drowned god's watery halls and in his impermanent war with the storm god. This passage comes just after Theon is watching a dying man crawl towards a well, and he can't tell which side the man is on. So, yeah, it's like either side of the war you're on, doesn't matter what banner you are, doesn't matter who you're fighting for. Men, women, dying in war. The, the Ironborn and the Dothraki aren't terribly similar in a lot of ways, but there are some major similarities, things that many other cultures also share, like having some belief about what happens to those who die bravely in battle. And all religions in Westeros gaze out on the same stars, which I think is a pretty poignant bookend, given this book 
started with a shared celestial event, the comet. So Theon's kind of bringing that all back here. Again, we can glean something important via omission. Yeah, Theon gazed at the stars and there's no mention of the comet. It makes sense that the comet can't be seen anymore, but if it had stayed in the sky the whole book, that wouldn't have been strange either. But it shows a lot of time has passed. The old powers are rising or have risen, maybe at this point. The comet has already passed. Which is interesting too, because Theon... I wonder if he's going to be involved in the supernatural aspects of the story. Right now, he hasn't been hardly at all. But in The Winds of Winter, he might be. He might be a sacrifice to the old gods or to R'hllor. <laughs> he might be kept alive because Stannis needs his knowledge of Winterfell, but maybe he'll just be killed after that. So it's interesting, too, though, that that might lead him into a situation all too familiar for him, hiding inside Winterfell while surrounded by a really large army. That would be familiar to Stannis as well, facing down a siege with long odds. Of course, I would suspect that if something besieges Stannis and Theon in Winterfell, it will be the others. So maybe Theon will get involved in that. More time to talk about that and guess at what's next for Theon when we get back to him in Dance of Dragons. He has more chapters in that book than this one. So there's actually more Theon to come than we've covered already. But we do have more to say about Ramsay before we move on from Theon, how much communication was there between him and his father? I brought that up earlier. Would have been difficult for the message to go back and forth. But let's say it was his call. Let's say it was his idea. Because I like this idea more because it creates this beautiful, dark, tragic parallel between Ramsay and Theon. Because the notion that they both went above and beyond their father's orders in almost exactly the same way, in exactly the same place, Theon's dreaming of taking and holding Winterfell, making himself worthy of his people and his father's ideals. Ramsay's doing the same. He's a snow. He's quite sensitive about it. And he's taking out Winterfell, the ancient enemy of the Boltons. He's what more glorious stroke could a Bolton have? But he's not a Bolton. But he wants to be. And right here, even in this chapter, that sensitivity that he has about his name comes up. Quote, Ramsay. There was a smile on his plump lips, but none in those pale, pale eyes. Snow, my wife called me before she ate her fingers, but I say Bolton. So the same themes of identity and approval and wanting to belong are just as present in the man who undoes Theon as they are in Theon himself. And that's something I didn't really grasp that strongly on prior reads. Ramsey's, you know, it's easy to get lost in just how awful Ramsey is and miss the fact that he is a human being that was raised by an awful human being, and that has a lot to do with why he is. But not entirely, because as we know, Ramsey was awful before he, Roos didn't even knew he existed. So it's kind of odd to think the fall of Winterfell is, uh, and this second major battle outside Winterfell is uh, right after the Blackwater. The Blackwater is like this gr- huge climaxing closing event of Clash of Kings, but we have this battle afterwards. It's It's pretty significant, but the battle itself isn't nearly as epic. It's it's a quick surprise attack, very one-sided. Uh, we don't get a ton of detail in terms of the, the actual hack and slash. It's just uh, you know, them watching above, watching it go really badly for the Northerners. Well, the non-Bolton Northerners, I mean. Also, too, wow, just think about it. We don't like to get too far into the what-ifs, but consider if Ramsay had been repelled. If Ramsay hadn't been successful or if Roderick or Lewin had figured out the plan or somehow defended Winterfell, then that probably saves Rob's life, right? 
that's a lot. That's a lot. <laughs> I mean, that's a huge difference, right? If, the loss of Winterfell was a big reason why Rob's, where everything fell apart for Rob. So also just want to point out that Ramsey has 600 men here, which he describes as his father, quote, his father's own garrison. And a lot of them are mounted knights, which speaks to Roos Bolton's caution. Roos brought a lot of men south and is doing everything he can to keep them alive while other northerners die. But he left a lot of men back. 600 is a huge garrison. So, <laughs> which also is relevant for when Stannis is thinking he can attack the Dreadfort. Uh, he probably doesn't realize how many men Roos really has, or Ramsay has. They're Roos's men, but Ramsay's controlling them. Same difference. All right. Sir Will Moss says, I always noted we were never really told when the comet disappeared. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I, we don't really know when it vanishes. We, we can look at when it's there, but just it's just not there eventually. Ridiculous Ed Tollett says, I always thought Bran seeing the dragon while in summer just before they leave the crypts was the comet leaving the sky. Oh, interesting. That's an interesting take. We'll uh, have more to say about the dragon, well, th- th- that dragon moment when we get to Brand 7 in a few chapters. Laura Brando's point to the imagery of Smiler on Fire being the last thing Theon sees. Yeah, Theon. <laughs> it hit her really hard, that moment. It's, it's Theon who's always smiling, never smiled after he felt the kiss of the flaying knife. Yeah, the name of that horse being named Smiler is, uh, is, no, is, is, is definitely a statement. And yeah, the... It's just so brutal in the last, the way that chapter ends. Nina points out that Theon thinks that Balon wouldn't have hesitated had he been in Beth's place, which is more, more right than he knows. Yeah, Balon was completely willing to let Theon die to, to do his invasion. He was like, yeah, they're going to hang him as a hostage because I'm breaking my uh, truce, my, my pledge to not rise up. But he was willing because in his mind, Theon was no longer Ironborn. Well, I love that one of Theon's men is named Harag Sheepstealer. It reminds me of the dragon Sheepstealer, which Theon could have really used, <laughs> especially with all that talk of a dragon rising from Winterfell in the ashes here. Stephanie the Peerless uh, also wants to shout out Wex for being like the northern version of Podrick here or the ironborn version of Podrick. She also points to Theon's line, I mean to live or die as Prince of Winterfell. Yeah, well... You'll get your wish there, it looks like. He maybe won't be Prince of Winterfell. He's more like one of the a ghost in Winterfell during A Dance of Dragons. Archmaester Randy points out a, a hilarious moment that Theon thinks he wants his garb washed. He tells Wex to clean his clothes. He's like, I'll not go to my grave in dirty clothes. How are you pretending to be ironborn with a sentiment like, I'm not going to go to my grave with dirty clothes? Also, <laughs> you think you're going to die and they're not going to dirty your clothes in the act of killing you? <laughs> it's so dumb and silly. Like, Theon, you're such a goofball, man. <laughs> he just wants to look nice for his death. You're ironborn. You're trying so hard to be ironborn. You think that? Jeez. We'll close this chapter out with a, our historical note about hostages. Uh, Stefan B. points out that the character, the real-life figure of Arminius, who was a hostage uh, of Rome, a German, uh, probably, I think he was the son of a king. And uh, they don't call them princes, I don't think. So I'm not using that term. But anyway, he was a, a hostage of, Germ- of, of the Romans. And when he was eventually set free, he learned, used what he learned at court and united the Germanic tribes and beat the Romans in battle. The same thing happened with Flavius Aetius. I looked up a couple other examples that I knew from the back of my head that Stefan B. reminded me of by bringing this topic up. Flavius Aetius was a Roman general also, 
And he, as a young man, lived amongst the Huns. And he was crucial in the Romans defeating the Huns, which was a really hard-fought campaign. And his time living amongst the Huns was crucial into understanding their tactics, their lifestyle, and uh, it was a big deal. Now, uh, probably a closer example or a better example is Philip II, as in the Philip who is the father of Alexander the Great, the same man who built the army that Alexander eventually took over and did all that conquering with. Philip II was uh, a hostage of Illyria and Thebes at different times in his youth. And in particular, his hot time in Thebes was, uh, was important because he learned about the Greek style of warfare that was different in Macedonia at the time. And eventually he took the Theban style, the Greek style of hoplite warfare and combined it with the, the cavalry expertise that the Macedonians had and uh, used it to build this kind of composite army that kicked the butts of mainland Greece and then later Persia. And so he learned, that's a good example of someone learning from the people they're hostage of and coming back to use that knowledge against the people that held them hostage. Theon, not as successful in that, but he did use his knowledge. He did his knowledge of how Sir Roderick thinks, how these knights think and how the North will react. Was He was very on point about that. That's one part of his plan that was well done. Okay, moving on again. Tyrion 15. Tyrion Lannister, the face of Plasterly Rock, a.k.a. the one where Milk of the Poppy leads to Tysha dreams. Lots of other dreams, too, not just Tysha, but that's probably the most important part. And it leads into so many other things. The wound in his face is horrible, but let's not forget he also took an arrow wound in the arm that began to mortify and broke a rib. Pain, pain, pain. Starting off with this quote. He dreamed of a cracked stone ceiling and the smells of blood and shit and burnt flesh. Sounds a little familiar, actually. Hmm, look at this quote. He dreamt an old dream of three knights in white cloaks and a tower long fallen and Liana in her bed of blood. Okay, it's not that similar, really, but it makes me think of that. But there are a lot of parallels here. Apparently, if you're handed the king in this story, not only are you either saved or slain by a person from House Payne, not only do you get the most chapters in the book, but you get dreams aided by Milk of the Poppy and plaster <laughs> on body parts of yours. Taisha dreams are not as significant as Ned's Tower of Joy dreams, but they are surely significant. And it's hard for him to dream of Taisha without also dreaming of his father. He thinks of how he must be strong. He thinks of how he has to be a lion while he's in and out of consciousness. It is hard to accept love when you've been convinced that the one example of real love you've had wasn't actually real love. The evidence here, in this chapter more than any other, George gives significant hints through these over-the-top cutesy moments that it was real love. That's the point. That's why these scenes are like so, you know, like I said, cutesy. They're just like two lovers just discovering each other. All the kissing and talking of love. That is not typical. And I'm not an expert on this, of course, but that's not what we hear about how sex workers behave. They usually don't involve lots of kissing. That's, I think, a subtle clue here that this that she wasn't hired, that she was genuinely into him. And uh, that is hard to realize. I, I wonder how much you can compare the language for Shay and Tyrion there. Yeah, that's Their a good activities, point. activities, I suppose. That's a really good point. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. But you're, you're probably right. There's probably some info to be gleaned there. I think it would just make this point stronger, if anything. So he dreams of, a, he also has other dreams, of course, though. Uh, he dreams of a world without color, dead and blacks and whites and grays and blames himself for this. The color is gone because it was burned away. Everything is ash, which is uh, an interesting 
kind of thing to think about, especially moving forward and future events that may leave certain large places in ash. Um, Tyrion being associated with dragon fire is certainly going to be associated with ash and more fires in the future. He dreams of having no mouth, surely because of the plaster over his face, but that makes him panic because he, at first, doesn't even remember his facial wound. And, uh, of course, makes us concerned. Yeah, it does. Because of, you know... The quiet lion. Yeah, and if you're if you're listening, you probably are familiar, but there's a lot of hints in the series that Tyrion might lose the ability to speak, which could happen in a number of ways. But uh, this this little bit doesn't make me feel great. Yeah, it's, it's, if, if it happens, we've already had setup for it. Um, we already know how Tyrion will react to not being able to talk. And it's not pretty. He also dreams of things that are actually happening, meaning he thinks it's a dream, but it's actually happening. Um, and here we go. Quote. He dreamed his sister was standing over his bed with their Lord Father beside her, frowning. It had to be a dream, since Lord Tywin was a thousand leagues away, fighting Rob Stark in the West. Others came and went as well. Varys looked down on him and sighed, but Littlefinger made a quip. Bloody treacherous bastard, Tyrion thought venomously. We sent you to Bitterbridge and you never came back. <laughs> oh, he came back all right. I mean, to massive awards and accolades, some of them undeserved, but some of them deserved, I suppose. Tywin took his position as hand back, too. At one point, he's awake and unable to comprehend why he can't speak. He panics and inwardly cries for help. It's telling to note the order of the people he thinks of, the people he cries to for help. Jamie, Shay, mother, someone, Taisha, in that order, just like that, including the someone. His mother, who he's never met, is on that list, but his father is not. <laughs> that's, that's pretty telling. Of course, his father's not there. His father isn't someone he would run to for help. After realizing they've won the battle, though, his dreams shift. They improve. They're less nightmarish and more optimistic, but they're still kind of back and forth. There's a variety of dreams here, but the immediate one is, is quite positive. He dreams of a victory feast. Everyone's cheering him on. The most unrealistic part isn't the, that everyone's cheering him on, nor is it that Jamie knights him in the stream, but the, but the fact that his father is smiling at him in the stream, which, yeah, right, <laughs> that would never happen. When he's at last able to tell the difference between being awake from asleep, he realizes he's heavily drugged and wants to switch from Milk of the Poppy to Dream Wine. Ned and Tyrion also both wake up with a change at hand to the king. Ned is forced to take the job back. Tyrion is forced to admit that his father is now in that position and he doesn't have the power he had anymore. Ned couldn't keep Robert alive his hand and Tyrion did keep Joff alive. <laughs> Who comes out ahead on that one? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, uh, yeesh, maybe Tyrion should not have done such a good job. Things move quickly in court. Decisions have been made without his input. That makes him very uneasy. And as we saw in the Sansa chapter, he's right to be worried about that. We don't know how long he was out. But considering that his face was mostly healed when the plaster comes off, we're talking weeks probably at least. I mean, that was a nasty wound. This is consistent with the high level of disorientation he has. He's been drugged for weeks, probably. And that's why he doesn't even remember Mandon Moore right away. It hits him all of a sudden like, oh my God, Mandon Moore, right. That's why my face is hurt. Holy crap. It's hard to heal when you're extremely stressed. That's another factor that might mean this is taking even longer. He's having all those nightmares and everything. That's not going to help the healing process. Tyrion doesn't even trust the maester. <laughs> like it's hard to trust to, you know, have that uh, space to heal when you don't even trust the guy giving you care. Now, Maester Balabar is the maester at the Arbor. That's the guy taking care of him. He's replaced by Franken. 
I don't actually see a compelling reason why either of those two is actually a threat. But Tyrion's more comfortable with Franken. He, he's more comfortable with, he, he's worried that he's being dosed with milk of the poppy to keep him insensate rather than to heal him. Yeah. That's part of the point, though, here, that there's no difference between these two maesters, probably. It's that Tyrion is paranoid. And in, when he's becoming a little more like his sister, and that's who he overwhelmingly suspects is the one that ordered Mandon Moore to kill him. He doesn't really consider the other option of Littlefinger. When he's at his best, he probably wouldn't focus so much on Cersei. He probably wouldn't. He probably would have a more strategic mindset and think, well, who else might want to kill me? He wouldn't just be so sure without really examining the evidence that it's Cersei. And of course, he's also focused on Tysha in a different way. <laughs> All, but as much as he's thinking about anyone throughout these dreams, Tysha is probably the most prominent. After all the things he's dreamed of, all the problems he's waking up to, that's still where his mind goes. He still thinks of Taisha, despite all the other anxieties and stress surrounding him right now. And lying down and thinking is really all he can do right now. His, his arc was a bang, especially the literal bang part of the wildfire explosions, but it's ending on a bit of a whimper. Not that the storytelling is weak. Of course, I don't mean that. I just mean that Tyrion has lost a lot of power and some of his face, and he's hardly able to stand or speak at this point as his arc is ending. So you maybe could say the candle that burns twice as bright burns only half as long because, uh, well, he, he burned brightly during his uh, Clash of Kings arc. His Storm of Swords arc is going to be a lot different. It's going to be a lot more frustrating. He's got to spar a lot with Joffrey. He's going to be shut down by his father a lot. They're going to argue. His father's going to be cruel to him. Cersei's going to keep basically being the same, which is not a good thing. So more people are being awful to Tyrion, and he has less power. He doesn't have his men. He doesn't have the, his clansmen are gone. His, he doesn't have his prestigious quarters. He doesn't have all these things that he had are gone now. And it's a harbinger for what's going to replace all those things. Bitterness. <laughs> Tyrion's going to be bitter. He's going to be underappreciated. And when your boss doesn't treat you right, if you can, you switch bosses. Of course, out in the real world, it's not such a simple thing to do. But in this world, well, it's still not a simple thing to do, but Tyrion does do it. And next book is going to be a big part of watching that journey. I look forward to it. A few notes from Joe. While Sansa's chapter concentrated on everyone dressing lavishly in an assortment of colors, Tyrion's dream is quite the opposite. This is a good catch. Lots of color in the aftermath throne room scene, but Tyrion is thinking of colorless. She's not sharing the victory that the nobility is in part because he doesn't see it as such a glorious thing. He's, yes, callous towards some of the small folk, but he's not nearly as callous as the rest of Team Lannister for the most part. And he does actually care about what he's done. Even if maybe he could care a little more. I don't know. <laughs> it's definitely one of his greatest redeeming qualities that he actually feels genuine guilt over these things over the plight of the common soldier, even if he doesn't perhaps feel it strongly enough. Maybe it's not going to change how he acts later. Maybe he's just going to, maybe it's going to seem worse that he understands more than certain other characters, how bad it is for the commoners on the front lines. Cause he's been there and he still doesn't do anything about it. We'll have to see. Maybe Tyrion is going to walk through the ashes after the TV version of the field of fire happens in the books, if it happens or something similar, and, and feel the same way, saying, how can this be a good? This is awful. I can't stand all this destruction and death. Or maybe he'll just be 
all for it because he's so bitter and wants revenge on these people that condemned him. One of the things to look forward to with Tyrion is that we don't know exactly how it's going to go out, even though we have some clues. Cersei coming and watching over his bed reminds us a bit of the story Oberyn tells Tyrion when she abused him, grabbing, you know, his little man parts and pinching him, being possessive, but also cruel. Wouldn't be surprised at all if, uh, (laughs) this is Joe's point here, that if she flicked his nose <laughs> when Tywin wasn't looking as he's recovering, just poking him, making him, poking him in the rib, like, you little jerk. Yeah, that's the kind of thing I could see Cersei doing. Kind of like how she slammed her hand into Lancel's wound, you know, something like that. I like how Podrick is referred to by Maester Balabar, or maybe it's Frank, and I forget which one, who calls him the odd, I think it's Balabar, who calls Podrick the odd boy. <laughs> that odd boy or whatever. He's like, yeah, he is a little odd, but he's brave and he is loyal. And you wonder, it shows, it's kind of interesting that he's, he actually feels a little guilty about killing Mandon Moore. And like, don't feel guilty. That dude was trying to kill your, your master. You did the right thing. You were the best squire possible. <laughs> Interestingly is, uh, Maybe there was an attempt to discard Tyrion. His body was found <coughs> in a pile in the cellar with other dead and dying people. And that, you know, if he was just some dude, that would make sense. You could see how that mistake would be made. But Tyrion is very distinct. He has very, his, his height, his appearance, like there's just so much about him that you can't not know that's Tyrion. So... The fact that he wasn't carried immediately to the maester or to, you know, the kind of care that the nobles would expect to get upon being injured so badly is peculiar. It maybe shows that Podrick wasn't able to explain who he was or he wasn't able to stop the people from throwing his body down into the cellar there. And that kind of makes sense because Podrick's not very good at talking. He maybe just, you know, form, tried to form sentences and just got tongue tied. And I'm not sure, but it's, uh, it, it might explain things. Stephanie the Peerless has a great take on Tywin. It's an insightful, brutal take. Tywin, part of what Tywin, Tywin's reasoning, quote, quote, unquote, reasoning, or at least his perspective, perspective is probably a better word here, for why Tywin is able to be so cruel about the Taisha situation. He doesn't grasp the idea that a Lannister could love a commoner. That's an alien concept to him that a Lannister could love a commoner. Nor can he grasp the idea that Anyone could love Tyrion. So the whole, uh, this whole concept to him is just doesn't fit in his worldview. So it's part of why he, he can get away with it in his mind. It's justified is that he doesn't actually think he's interfering in a real relationship. He thinks it's a lark. Uh, he thinks it's just, you know, maybe some lust or something like that going on. He doesn't think it's real love. But it's part of the problem is Tywin himself doesn't really understand love and he's passed that on to his kids. Neither Cersei nor Jamie have a good, are good at framing love either. And this is all wrapped into the tragedy of losing Joanna. Joanna, as a mother, we don't know that much about her, though we made attempts in our Joanna Lannister episode. Joanna, Joanna Lannister episode. She probably would have loved Tyrion because most mothers love their kids no matter what. And I'm not going to assume she'd be different. There's a chance, but I'm not going to assume she'd be different. And if she could love Tyrion, that might have moved Tywin somewhat. At least it would have been an example, a positive example and uh, of someone that Tywin actually respects, not Tyrion, I mean Joanna. Yeah, that would have, that's just another what if, but it's, it's an important part of how big a deal Joanna's loss was to the entire Lannister family. She, was the, she seemed to be like the heart and soul, the glue of that group. 
It would have been better if Ty would have been the one to die. That is it for Tyrion 15. Let us go to John 8. The gang kills the half hand. <laughs> the gang kills the half hand, a.k.a. the one where John joins the free folk. Quote. When Corin Halfhand, sorry, Corin ha- Asshand <laughs> told him to find some brush for a fire, John knew their end was near. Fires are too easy to spot, so John sees building a fire as giving up. But he's not entirely right. As he's gathering wood, he reflects on the past few days. There's more doomed bravery from these men, an important perspective for a future Lord Commander to have, right? A Lord Commander who knows what rangings are like. At least he has a clue of what he's asking of a man when he sends them beyond the wall. Corrin is amazing again, too. The fire is not a sign of giving up, as I said. It's, yeah, Corrin doesn't expect their odds are very good, but he's still trying. He's not giving up. The fire is a decoy, but they get to sit and enjoy it for a little while before leaving it to become a distraction. So they head from their fire into a secret place under the mountains, and Corrin is very focused on getting this message back to the wall. That's what matters to him because he knows their, their chances of survival are slim, but that message has to get there. More important than the knowledge of the wildling army is the return of magic. Corrin is clear that Mormont must know this. He must be told that the trees have eyes again, the old powers are awakening. But he also knows, Corrin does, that that's incomplete information, that what he's telling Mormont is, is, uh, needs more detail. And so that's part of Corrin's impetus here is to tell John, watch, join the wildlings and watch and learn. John wants to know what to look out for. Corrin doesn't know. He says, it's got to be something though. The circumstantial evidence here is scary because it sounds like a threat to the wall. They're looking for a supernatural way to take down the wall. And Corrin has taken supernatural stuff very seriously. So thus he takes the idea of an artifact that can bring down the wall seriously as well. Quote, your wolves saw their diggings in the valley of the milk water. What did they seek in such a bleak and distant place? Did they find it? That is what you must learn before you return to Lord Mormont and your brothers. That is the duty I lay on you, Jon Snow. And that's why Jon's life is so important, because only he of their party can join the wildlings. It's not terribly credible that the others would. They're all long-term veterans. Even if Stone Snake could be believed as a deserter, he's probably killed a few wildlings over his career. As we'll see, John's going to have a hard time being accepted in the wildlings. Some of them won't trust him. And part of that is because, well, Orel hates him and Rattleshirt doesn't trust him. But Orel is the key here. There's members of the wildlings that have, are, are holding on to revenge against certain members of the watch. The longer you've been a ranger, the more wildlings you've killed, the more wildlings are going to have a grudge against you. It's going to be harder for Stone Snake because he's probably got a lot of kills under his belt that someone wants revenge for. And Corrin, no one would believe that Corrin Halfhand's going to join the Wildlings, let alone all the men he's killed of the Wildlings and all the grudges he's engendered with them. Uh, like I said, uh, only John even has a, someone who wants him dead, and he's only been, this is his first ranging. So Corrin's argument about the value of the lives is so cutting in its deconstruction of honor in the face of duty. Honor is a luxury for men beyond the wall. The case of Craster, i.e. tolerating him, because not tolerating him means death, is a great example. That point is made clearer when Corin reminds John of his oath. Their bottom line, this is what service really is. Even giving up your honor is something that the Night's Watch calls you to do. And that 
is hard for John to grasp because he was raised at Winterfell. The Starks do have the privilege of maintaining their honor in the face of, of duty and in upholding that. They can defend the realm and not get their hands too dirty, right? The Night's Watch can't. The Night's Watch has to get their hands dirty to do their job because they're put in a very difficult position. They're undermanned, they're understaffed, the, the realm is not aware of the great danger that they're facing. But John was raised in an environment where honor is put almost as high as anything else. So high that it's hard to tell when you're supposed to be honorable versus supposed to be dutiful. Or supposed to be, and, and to what are you supposed to be dutiful here? The parallel is to Rob here is huge as well. It's just happened off screen, but Rob has also been faced with the test of putting honor before a pledge of duty. He bails. John may have failed too, if not for Corin setting him straight on his priorities. John and Rob both try to be like Eddard Stark, but they both get it wrong in part because the real Eddard Stark was hidden from them. They only saw the honorable and uncompromising Ned Stark not the Ned who didn't hesitate to act to sacrifice his honor, i.e. didn't hesitate to compromise when his sister and her son were in question, and then later when Sansa was in question. When it comes to his family, Ned Stark is a Tully, <laughs> even though he's not one by birth. Family, duty, then honor. But Rob and John seem to have gotten the message that it might be the other way around. It might be honor, duty, then family. I mean, I mean, why would they not think that considering Ned let Catelyn not welcome John into the family and yeah. apparently never told Catelyn the truth? Yeah, from but their perspective. that doesn't rele- isn't relevant to them. But the former, like, it's not a good precedent that family is truly, truly number one. It's it's tough. Yeah, it's it's. And so is the same. Same goes for putting honor first over, you know, it's it's tricky. It, it all depends. You can't just I think that's part of the message here is you can't just blanket statement any of this right it has to depend you know sometimes duty comes first depends on the duty sometimes family comes first depends on the family i don't know it depends on the situation so that's uh but but you make a great point from their perspective they're being like the ned stark they think they're that is the real ned stark because they don't have the full picture so the tower of joy hangs over both these plot points somehow ned was willing to lie to protect john to conceal his identity from the man he pledged to follow as his king his king and best friend. Neither John nor Rob can fathom this because they're not aware of it. They have no idea this even happened. And Rob, growing up with the example of John, right? As, as Ashea brought up, he saw the strain and, uh, on his mother and saw how she handled it, which isn't great. And he saw the cost his father incurred at raising John in his own household, saw the, what that did to their family. So John and Rob were both raised to put honor above Maybe not above family, maybe not above duty, but definitely above their own life. They're taught I mean, that their own life is worth less than their own honor. I mean, yeah, the exact thing that John, that Rob chose to do is what Ned, you know, seemingly didn't do. Yes. Which is go with the woman he slept with and had a child with. Yes, because Ashari, yes. Rob Stark probably thinks like everybody else in Winterfell that Ned Stark slept with Ashara Dane. And then she killed herself and, and it all herself. went terribly and... So yeah, if if he's reacting to that. So Rob, if he if he thinks that Ashara killed herself because of Ned not marrying her or whatever, would be like, oh, I don't want that to happen. I got to marry her. She might kill herself. You know, it's he's wrong, but it was taught to him by the father, the person he valued most in life, the person that that he most trusted, and indirectly taught to him. You know, it's not like Ned sat him down one day and was like, well, if you're ever in a situation like this, marry the girl. You know, that didn't happen. I don't think. 
Yeah, in fact, he would have told him the opposite. Yeah. Marry the one you are betrothed to. Yes. <laughs> oh, well. So, Corin knows he's up against this attitude from John. He knows that John is a child of Winterfell, and that's a big part of why he has John recite his oath to remind him that his life and honor belong to the Night's Watch, not just his life. John thinks to himself, he's, he's willing to die. John's got that kind of bravery. If I have to die, I have to die. And that's, and it is brave, no, no mistake. But he takes for granted, John does, that he'll die with honor. He'll think, well, if I'm dying beyond the wall. They're going to remember me as someone who went ranging. I was doing my duty, etc. But the idea of dying without honor is alien and horrifying and completely unexpected to him. And he takes, takes him a minute. But again, recurring theme, John is great at accepting hard truths, right? From the very get, from the get-go, Tyrion notices about him. And it helps that he's had characters written by George R.R.M., explaining it to him. So, you know, you know that John has had hard truth acceptance eloquently explained to him by several different characters. <laughs> Half-Hand is not just convincing with his George R. R. Martin written words. He's convincing with his attack on John. His, his martial prowess is uh, apparent. But that's part of why John is the perfect choice for this role. Corrin can try his best to kill John and can still expect to lose, even though he's the better fighter. And that's simply because of Ghost. Corrin would win otherwise if it was a straight one-on-one where they're both really trying to win. But Ghost is fearsome, even with his recent injury. So really, we should all be admiring the nerve of this guy. Yeah, Corrin's brave for sacrificing himself, but it's even braver than it seems if you, if you really break it down. Not only does, does he know he's going to die, but he knows he's going to have to face a dire wolf while acting like John's a traitor. He's got to act throughout all this, too. You might say, sure, it's a little lucky that Ygritte is there in this party that happens to find John. And, you know, I'll say it's partly luck. Ygritte could have left the army if she wanted. She didn't have to chase the Night's Watch here, though. And she knows she might encounter John again. She knows he's alive. And that's clear from her perspective. So I think she knows what she's doing here. She wants to find him again. Only one group of wildlings is here with Orel the Eagle, right? It's just this group of 14 or so. And that's why they found John and Corn because they're with Orel. Igrit, as a member of the Free Folk, she doesn't have to ride with Rattleshirt. She doesn't have to ride with Orel. She chose that though because she knows that Orel is the way to find John and, and the rest of the wild, uh, the rest of the Rangers. Whether she cares about them as much, I'm not so sure. But I think she wanted to find John again, and no one else would have had this luck that John had here because, well, he let her go. He created his own luck in a sense. Mercy resulted in karmic payback. You create your own luck, right? Sometimes luck kicks you in the face. Sometimes you do everything right and luck goes against you. And sometimes it does that to you before you're born. And even the most privileged of us don't have total control over what happens in our lives. Everyone from the richest, most powerful person in the world can fall victim to bad luck. But we all have some agency towards improving our chances. Some people have way more agency than others, but we all can at least maybe make luck work in our favor a little more if we do the right things, we make, make the right decisions. And that's part of the lesson here. John, like I said, I called it karmic payback. He spares Igrit, he's merciful, and she talks to him about how maybe they're not so different after all, maybe even having shared blood thanks to Bale the Bart, and that com- culminates here in this moment. Speaking of getting lucky with Igrit, and no, well, not that kind of getting lucky, <laughs> we'll talk about that in a Storm of Swords. But surely it's meaningful that Ygritte gambles with her fellows over the half-hand things and wins his cloak 
much has been made of cloaks and what it means to wear someone else's cloak. And it's kind of in this sense, I see it as the mantle of mentorship being passed on. Corin was John's temporary mentor. And now it's a grit, right? It doesn't, grit being a mentor isn't necessarily how she's perceived by a lot of people because she's not only a mentor. It's an entirely different kind of learning, you know, having a relationship as well as learning about the wildlings. But he needs it. He knows nothing. That's the kind of thing his teacher would, it sounds like a tutor would say to a student in, in a fantasy setting, you know nothing. <laughs> Just continuing to teach them more. So he's, it's the hero's journey, key old hero's journey here. Again, he's moving through another stage on that path. From Winterfell to the Wall, to Beyond the Wall as a ranger, to Beyond the Wall as a wildling, and back again, as we'll see. And all of this will come to a major climax in A Storm of Swords before moving towards the threat of the undead, which is alluded to very vaguely as this chapter ends. As they burn the half-hand, we're reminded why without needing to be told, right? They're like, let's burn the half-hand. Everybody knows why they're burning him and not leaving his body. And the first thing a grit teaches John before the chapter even ends is that John is that Mance is already on the move with that big army of theirs. And uh, yeah, so she's already teaching him things. In- intelligence, and that's the kind of thing he needs to learn. This is the first chapter with Rattleshirt, a good example of a character whose fellows should have listened to him, <laughs> and quote. Let him die, insisted the Lord of Bones. The Black Crow is a tricksy bird. I trust him not. He trusted John at no point. <laughs> and what does he get for it? Burned at the stake or in a cage as the fake Mance Raider? Yeah. Everyone else agreed with the grit about letting him join, except for Orel, of course. And what happened to Orel? He was also burned. <laughs> so <laughs> go against Jon Snow here and you get burned. Well, that's fitting. Lots of people who go up against Targaryens get burned. And uh, John also wins the Lamy Award. Successful yielding. Far more successful than most other yields we've seen. Yes, Jon Snow, Lamy Award winner. Uh, Joe catches something, a line here that's interesting. Even dreams cannot live up here, he told himself. Hmm. Maybe that's just a throwaway line, but it does have us wondering if normal dreams, if dreams work the same way up north there. He doesn't actually have more wolf dreams, but he does have a sense of ghosts nearby. So that's interesting. But the power, his powers are still developing, I suppose. Joe says the, the beginning of the chapter also reminds uh, him of the original prologue. When, when a small band of watch are hunting wildlings, here it's in reverse. Uh, but with the same result. Both, in both cases, it's the, the, the Night's Watch that are doomed. It's very interesting that at this final fire where Corrin surely knows he will not survive, George doesn't choose to give us more backstory or more character building on Corrin. He just laser-focused on his mission and his role as uh, an avatar of Night's Watch duty. And that's why he has the repetition of the vows. And that's also why he asks repeatedly, is your sword sharp, Jon Snow? It's, it's a striking point if you really delve into it. Because the first time he says, is your sword sharp, Jon Snow? He says, oh, yeah, my sword's Valyrian steel. Of course it's sharp. And this is Corrin, This is Corrin's little bit of fear manifesting. He wants to know that it's going to work. He wants to know that when Jon kills him, it's going to be smooth. It's going to be clean. There's no reason for him to have to suffer. He wants a nice, clean, quick death. And that's what he gets. Right through the neck, you know, bleeds out. And it doesn't take him long. He dies quickly. A few last thoughts from y'all. Archmaester Rennie points out the comparison of Corrin learning to fight with his left hand versus what might be coming for Jamie. Now, a few people pointed this line. 
and wonder if uh, Jamie just doesn't have that same talent. Other people point to the fact that Jamie hasn't had the time Corrin's had. Corrin had plenty of time to learn to fight with his left hand, probably quite a long time, probably years and years and years, whereas Jamie hasn't. So maybe Jamie will, uh, Jamie seems to be improving still. Maybe he'll never be Corrin because I don't know that that much time will pass, but he might be able to hold his own. Definitely a lot of people wondering about Stone Snake, whether he's alive or not. We don't know. I mean, I don't have any additional insight to, I hope he's alive, but there's just nothing for us to delve into clue-wise, nothing in the narrative I'm aware of that suggests he might be out there. But outside of the narrative, there is one thing. Good catch by Nina. She points out that he is still, even in Advanced Dragons, in the appendix, listed as alive. And he's even in the World of Ice and Fire app, listed as alive. So there's hope. There is hope. As far as the narrative goes, I don't have much hope, but this does give me hope, this note that in, in the appendix. And as Corin said, if anyone can survive on foot through the mountains, it's Stone Snake. He's told to go rendezvous with the brothers at the Fist, but of course there's no way he could do that because the Fist is attacked right away in a storm of swords, long before Stone Snake could have gotten there, long before John gets there. So, yeah. Last chapter. The last chapter, Brand 7, the gang splits up and heads north, a.k.a. the one where Hodor opens the door with the opening quote of... The ashes fell like a soft gray snow. Yeah, more ash. Hmm, more grayness. Another chapter where Brand starts off in summer, just as the last one did, and just as the first one in the Storm of Swords will. So it's the middle of a three-in-a-row chapter streak where Brand starts off the summer. Now we learn as well that he can just do it now. He just instantly jumps into summer to check what time of day it is. It's just, a, he's, he's got it down now. And in addition to the three-in-a-row chapter streak, we also have three days. Three days of Bran being in summer, straight. He did not wake up. He did not eat or pee or anything. They said apparently they were dribbling the honey water on his lips so he would have some nourishment. Before, he was he hated the idea of being a war. He, he didn't like the idea of being... Uh, shunned of of being what he had thought was something only in old man's stories. But his attitude has changed a lot. He's grown familiar and comfortable with it and empowered by it. Quote. The wolf ate, Jojen said. Not you. Take care, Bran. Remember who you are. He remembered who he was all too well. Bran the boy. Bran the broken. Better Bran the beastling. Was it any wonder he would sooner dream his summer dreams, his wolf dreams, here in the chill, damp darkness of the tomb? His third eye had finally opened. So not only does he like it, not only is he embracing it, he likes it too much. That's a theme we've been wondering about for very far down the road. Just like we did with Arya, we wonder what happens if she's going to maybe be a little too much of a killer because it'll be so easy for her and she doesn't really feel uh, guilt over killing. Bran, meanwhile, is going to be so very powerful. And if he's directing his powers towards fighting the others, well, he's going to have a lot on his hands. But once that's over with, what's he going to do with all that power if he's king? You know, where's the great threat for him to point his energy into? That's when you wonder if he might start, you know, peeking in people's heads or taking people over or just doing things that he doesn't necessarily see as wrong, but are almost certainly wrong. Or if he just becomes like so many other kings and is just corrupted by his own power and, and goes too far. Got to wonder about that. It's, it's an interesting 
hard thing to think about because Brand is such a good kid, such a merciful, you know, uh, sensitive, empathetic person. Power corrupts even that. So I, I, I wonder, because Bran Stark is one thing. King Brandon is something else. Kill the boy, let the man be born. Well, by the time Bran is, is king, assuming he will be, he will not be a boy anymore, even if he is still kind of that age. <laughs> so calling Bran is, in fact, referred to good nature as a good-natured boy, but maybe good and nature are not the best choice of words as a pairing, considering how angry nature is and how much... Nature wants revenge on humanity. This is a chapter that has a very infamous passage here. Uh, Let's read it. The smoke and ash clouded his eyes, and in the sky he saw a great winged snake whose roar was a river of flame. He bared his teeth, but then the snake was gone. Behind the cliffs, tall fires were eating up the stars. Evidence of a dragon or just wolf perspective metaphors? I think the latter. I mean, the idea that it could be a real dragon worked back in the day, meaning back when there was no other, there were only a few more books or one more book. What I mean by that is it's reasonable to think a dragon might be able to hide for a while, but after three books and there's still no mention of a dragon loose in the North, no one's mentioned, there's no reference at all to anything like this. And that, that definitely takes the theory down several notches. On the other hand, in this same chapter, Osha does say, we made enough noise to wake a dragon. So the idea is not completely dead. I am not going to abandon it, even though I am not a big believer in it. Of course, our thoughts on the crypts of Winterfell are well covered in the episode of the same name, which includes a section on the statues, which is a big part of this chapter. Uh, what we know about the various kings and lords and such. If you recall, I mentioned Cregan Stark and Aemon the Dragon Knight when uh, Jamie mentions himself thinking he might fight Rickard Stark for Ares. These names are all very close together in the narrative, and that's because they echo each other. Here's a key line said about the long-dead Starks, quote, This was where they came when the warmth had seeped out of their bodies. This was the dark hall of the dead where the living feared to tread. Ooh, it rhymes. Yeah, I know. I just realized. (laughs) Now notice how similar that language is to what Bran sees in reference to John in his coma dream. He saw the wall shining like blue crystal and his bastard brother, John, sleeping alone in a cold bed, his skin growing pale and hard as the memory of all warmth fled from him. So warmth leaving the body is a recurring theme for death. And, of course, it's very clearly death when you're talking about going down into the crypts to, to be laid to rest. In John's coma, in Bran's coma dream, seeing John, it's less clear, although we also have the knowledge of the fact that he is actually killed. <laughs> so that really, my dispute, that really just helps to us to, to place this all, to frame it all properly. John might be stored in the ice cells, for example. His body might be put down there. Um, and Maester Eamon also describes death as all warmth leaving his body as well. So that's a recurring uh, specific bit of language to maybe look out for. If you see that again, you'll know what it means. Also down in the the crypts, they take swords with them, which later scares Theon as he knows they're meant to keep back vengeful spirits. Something we do think is likely to happen at some point. Maybe the swords on on the laps won't actually matter, but the dead rising in the crypt seems like it's gonna happen. And then all these stone kings brand names off They'll have one more awful dead king added to the list posthumously. Sorry, one more awful deed added to the list posthumously, not more awful dead. (laughs) 
it's a pivotal moment in reverse that Hodor opens the door here. In both cases, it could be a place of death where the door lies. Quote. Open the door, Hodor, Bran said. He just comes right out and says it. It's been okay. right there since 1999. New uh, Rock 44 said, so if, if that was the case, this would be Odor. Yeah, Odor. Odor. <laughs> well, uh, there is a lot of smelling in this chapter. <laughs> Bran using Summer's sense of smell. <laughs> uh, speaking of doors, on death's door himself is Maester Lewin, whom they find in a very meaningful spot right in front of the Weirwood and the Blackpool. He is no longer there to guide them and though much of his guidance has been invaluable, when it comes to the supernatural, he's got it all wrong. And that's where Bran is headed, deep into the realm of precisely what Lewin denies the existence of. So it's sort of fitting for his end to be right here. And it's particularly poignant that he dies in front of the Weirwood, the symbol of where Bran is going, that Lewin can no longer help him. And he's a man of learning, dying in front of that most blatant symbol of the old gods, right? It's it's a... Uh, it's like he's sac- science is being sacrificed at the foot of, of the supernatural. And we know werewoods of old had blood sacrifice given to them. So there's kind of a, a hearkening to that, even though at this point in the narrative, that's not revealed. But we know as rereaders that it's very much the case. So it's, it's kind of like, whoa, Lewin dying in front of the werewood. That is his blood seeping in there. Um, I wonder what that means. Uh, there's another quote here that's relevant. Now go. Osha gazed up at the werewood, at the red face carved in the pale trunk, and leave you for the gods. Mm, Can I so, start, stop real quick and just say, yeah, you made me think, what northern maesters can we think of, maesters that are from the north? Oh, good question. I just, I just a, a question I want to throw out to our listeners right now. We don't have to get bogged down, but... I can't think of any off the top of my head. Horsbane was sent to train as a major, but You're it sounds right. like he busted out. It sounds like he didn't make it. But that at least helps the, the show that there are Northerners yeah. who go. I don't know if we have an example, but that's a good one. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good point. Because, you know, for example, it's occasionally it's pointed out where these maesters come from, like where their original yeah. homeland is. And that that's sometimes Especially when you're up north and that they're a Southerner. Yes, <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, people like Lady Dustin, who's, very doesn't really trust them and yeah. points out that, that one used to be a Lannister or no it's I think that's that's why that's in Wyman's court where their maester used to be a, yeah. a Lannister yeah so yeah I mean but I wonder if they would trust their maester a little more if they were a northerner yeah well that's an interesting another thing that this makes me think of too is that back in the day when the old gods worship was a lot more powerful and prominent this might be the kind of guy they would sacrifice. Not a maester necessarily, yeah. but maybe, but really just a, a non-believer. Yeah. Know, someone that's a, a, a Southerner that rejects the, 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 the truth of the old gods. Lewin's a want to be a believer. Yeah. So Osha gives him the gift of mercy rather than, quote, leaving him to the gods like that. And it is a tragedy, though, back, you know, imagining Lewin as a sacrifice uh, is hard to do, but because he's a genuinely good person. Um, but even though, like I said, he's the wrong person for Bran to be Bran's mentor going forward. There's a twist here in this scene, of course. Let's not forget that while this whole thing is playing out, Wex Pike is right there, 15, 20 feet away, up the tree, watching all this, listening to everything, and eventually following, uh, well, he follows Team Skagos, uh, going with Rickon and Osha and Shaggy Dog. And uh, that is how... Wyman Manderley and Robert Glover learn that Rickon is on Skagos. And that's why Davos is brought in, of course. So Wex Pike connecting that dot for us. But since Wex followed Rickon and Osha and Shaggy, he knows little of Bran and Mira and Jojen and Hodor and Summer. 
So he hasn't able to say much to the Manderleys about that. Luckily, we don't need Wex because we have POV chapters in A Storm of Swords and A Dance with Dragons for Bran. But fewer. We've done seven chapters in A Clash of Kings and there were seven in A Game of Thrones for Bran. 14 chapters. But there's only seven more total for him. Of course, there'll be more in Wins of Winter. But as of now, we are two-thirds of the way through the Bran chapters. Hmm. It's a dark ending to Bran's Clash arc in the book in general. But there's hope at the end. Quote. Beyond, the tops of the keeps and towers still stood as they had for hundreds of years, and it was hard to tell that the castle had been sacked and burned at all. The stone is strong. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the seed is wet. The yeah. stone is strong. <laughs> Bran told himself, the roots of the trees go deep, and under the ground, the kings of winter sit their thrones. So long as those remained, Winterfell remained. It was not dead, just broken. Like me, he thought. I'm not dead either. Yeah. Again, this is a reminder that there's been several times where the phrase brand the broken or where he just thinks of it or just the broken boy or the word broken is applied, but it's always in his head. It's, ne- it's not spoken out loud at any point, I don't think. At least not that phrase, brand the broken. But in his head, it has. <clears throat> a couple other thoughts. The details we get from both Brandon Summer about the specific damage to Winterfell shows Ramsey's really committed to destroying the castle. Uh, the library tower doesn't get cracked by Ramsey killing off Theon's Ironborn. You know, that's, that's, there's, they're going out of their way to, to smash things up. The glass gardens is wrecked and uh, all these other things. And of course, it's, it's kind of funny because it's going to end up being rebuilt. But R- Joe says Roos wouldn't have been happy at all this waste. I, I guess that's probably true, though. On the other hand, maybe Roos just doesn't care because he's got essentially unlimited manpower to rebuild it. And he doesn't care about the harm or suffering he inflicts on, you know, the laborers that do that work. On the other hand, the glass gardens are really expensive. And uh, that he couldn't, he can't just tell them to fix that and not without it costing him some money. So yeah, maybe Ramsey went a little too overboard there, but that's pretty typical for his character going, you know, being maximum destruction. Stone and shattered gargoyles lay strewn across the yard. They just, they fell just where I did, Bran thought when he saw them. Some of the gargoyles had broken into so many pieces it made him wonder how he was alive at all. Not too subtle here, uh, again, with the signs. Not only is Bran remembering the biggest event of his life, but setting the seeds for what he will remember at the end of his chapter. He was supposed to end, but he didn't. And Winterfell will do the same. So Bran, Joe is pointing to Bran's symbolism as an extension of Winterfell. Bran may be broken, but he's not dead. He can continue to grow and gain power. Same as can be true for the castle he was born in. Winterfell burned and broken, but it can be restored. And the stone is still there. The roots of the trees are still there. The crypts are still there. There's still a lot that makes it stark, that makes it Winterfell, that gives it its identity. You can't help but love the idea of all the Starklings and their friends choosing to make their little hideout in Eddard's uh, open tomb. It's sort of, uh, that's a little bit of a, some symbolism of him still watching over them. As for where, Lewin suggests they go. It's interesting, his suggestion, he says, quote, White Harbor, the Umbers. I do not know. War everywhere. Each man against his neighbor and winter coming. Such folly. Such black, mad folly. Joe says that is a great summary of Clash of Kings all wrapped up into a quick sentence. 
and all the books after too, maybe. Um, <laughs> the North was supposed to be different. It was supposed to be above the politics of the South. It was supposed to be focused on winter and survival. And no, nope, not at all. Humanity just deals itself another blow by infighting, by betrayal, by quest for power, by greed. Here now, we have a whole a book later. Uh, the death of Eddard Stark is opened the door for all this. Right, Stefan B. and others are wondering about Artos the Implacable. Well, I have a, a quick anecdote there. We know that Artos the Implacable was never Lord of Winterfell, but he has a statue made. He's sort of a precursor to Lyanna and Brandon getting statues without ever uh, being Lord or Lady of Winterfell. And this wasn't that long ago. Artos the Implacable would have ruled circa the early 220s as, as regent to his nephew, Willem, uh, who is, I'm sorry, Edwile, who was a father to Rickard, who was, of course, father to Ned. So this wasn't that long ago, like I said. Artos, Will, uh, Willem Stark was killed in, by, in the battle against Raymond uh, Redbeard. I believe it was Raymond Redbeard. And uh, his young son, Willem, thus inherited Winterfell. But Willem was, God, I keep saying Willem. Edwile was extremely young when he inherited Winterfell, and thus Artos was most likely regent and ruling Winterfell in his name until he came of age. And that would be why he is recognized for ruling, even though he wasn't actually lord. Um, he was also apparently a great warrior. He was noted as called the Implacable because he was uh, a fierce warrior, aggressive warrior, and perhaps the finest swordsman of his day, at least in the north. Also questioned is whether Bran will truly lie in the crypts one day. He thinks it'll be his final resting place, but is it going to be if he's a king in the South? Probably still will be, but it's a good question to wonder if that's no longer his, you know, if he's going to uh, continue to be buried in his family crypts, even though he's uh, ruling in a different kingdom. But he's still a Stark, so I think he probably still will be, but it's a good question. Tree Girl points out that the door to the crypts is made of ironwood, which is a, you know, an interesting uh, substance for the door to be made. She wonders if that relates at all to iron keeping out the spirits, like the iron swords on the, uh, the graves uh, on the crypts to keep them from rising. If the door is perhaps meant to also facilitate that uh, warding. I have to say, I think it's kind of neat, the mention of ironwood here, because yeah. obviously anyone who has played uh, that Game of Thrones mobile game yeah. Else Forester is the Ironwood Forest. Yeah. Anyways, just that's aside. True. Yeah, I like that. It's too bad that I believe that company went belly up, but I think the uh, game Telltale is still available. Games. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know how they're long, defunct. <laughs> how deep they got into it or anything. I don't think they finished it. I think there's supposed to be six episodes. I think they only did two or three. Hmm. But those two were pretty good. It's too bad it failed because it seemed like a decent game. Hmm. It said apparently in that. Um, that Ironwood gives off a blue flame in the game when burned. Yeah. Anyway. I'm not sure if that's uh, canon or not, but why yeah. not? I mean, we've seen trees give off a green flame in real life. Yeah. Black walnut does that. Yeah, so Ironwood. Why not Why not some blue flame? That's not, uh, it's not, it's not, it's not even supernatural. That's just uh, perhaps just a, play, uh, a slight deviation from the way it works in the real world. And that is it for Brand 7, which means that is it for A Clash of Kings. Yay, we finished A Clash of Kings. Yay, everybody, let's all give ourselves a clap of kings. A clap of kings. <laughs> Yay. So that's very cool. I'm, I'm, I loved going through Clash of Kings. It was surprising how much we missed. Even I mean, And I mean myself, having read these books more times than I can count. There's so many more things. And it, it just really makes me feel 
so right about doing this reread because there's so many things we're we're over we're turning up that we missed things that relate that we missed because we didn't see them coming that have now been revealed from the TV show or little details from Fire and Blood just lots of little things it's not just it's, of course the TV show is a big part of it but it's by no means is it everything other things the fandom has just gotten smarter about over time things we've, we've gotten more understanding of certainly public perception society has changed i mean the kinds of things that we value and and promote have changed somewhat from when these books first came out so when you read the books you may have a different take on certain characters actions and whether you think what they did was justified or ethical or um or vice versa so we don't have a list of chapters for next time because next time is our wrap-up episode we will be going through clash of kings as a whole talking about some of the themes, talking about little things that we may have missed during our regular reviews. You may and should, we encourage it, send us questions, even if uh, they're questions not for me. Ask questions for our guests or if you want questions answered by all of us. Remember, that is going to be, uh, assuming we have no schedule changes, that will be Lady Gwyn and Joe Buckley. So thanks to them. Thanks to Joe Buckley in particular for his work on the Isle of Faces podcast where he adds additional analysis for each Valar reread this episode. He calls that the Scraps and Scrolls editions. Uh, thanks also to Michael Klarfeld for our maps. And, and for the lovely holiday card he sent yes, us. Yes, thanks, Michael. You yeah. Hold it up. Okay. Anyone watching on video? Or on you have it upside version? down. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you have Winterfell folding it's, out. How yeah, cool is that? Yeah, it's a pop-up card. One of those 3D pop-up cards. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. Also, Michael was involved in a film, uh, making a film, a German film. It's got subtitles. You can find the link to it in our Facebook group. Yeah. Also, it's in our. It's also posted in our Slack group, which, by the way, if you're a patron, you should join us on Slack. Also, thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for our intro music, Kevin McLeod for the Valar Reedus music. Also, thanks to our History of Westeros mods for posting chapter discussions every week. Thanks to everyone who is a regular contributor on Flick or Facebook or Slack or any of the other places we discuss the chapters. We encourage you to join in those discussions. And of course, thanks to all the patrons who make all this possible from the financial perspective. We couldn't do it without y'all. We're eternally grateful and will remain so. And we'll be starting a storm of swords in January 2020. It sounds like a long way away, but it's not. <laughs> it's next year, but next year is so soon as of this recording. Today is 1222 and we'll be starting storm swords early January. schedule will be, will be posted on all our social media outlets so keep an eye out for that and we should have by next weekend the 29th when we have our stream we should have that hammered out for definitely, too, definitely. So. absolutely it's mostly done but i haven't posted it yet. all right y'all that's it for clash of kings we'll see you for the wrap-up and for storm of swords and beyond until then you know what to do Valar, reread us